Hi, it's Murray Horwitz, about to bring you tonight's big broadcast and working from home, as so many of my WAMU colleagues are. Tonight would have been our spring membership campaign show, but we've paused the campaign because right now, WAMU's mission to bring you critical news updates is more important. And on the big broadcast, our mission, giving you a few hours' respite from the cares and worries of the rest of the week, is just as important. So tonight, you'll hear a show that we recorded a while ago for just such exigent moments. Next week, we'll resume bringing you all new big broadcast programs recorded from my glamorous basement. If you appreciate the big broadcast, especially in these times, please show your support for our show by becoming a member of WAMU or increasing your gift at WAMU.org. And our sincerest thanks. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. Tonight, some of the classic characters in radio and popular literature. Sam Spade, The Lone Ranger, Sherlock Holmes with Orson Welles and the music of Bernard Herrmann, and, of course, Johnny Dollar, Sergeant Joe Friday on Dragnet, and Marshal Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. And we'll throw in a real-life character comedian Bob Hope. We've put last week away, so put your cares of the week away, too, and don't worry about a week that hasn't really started yet. Instead, listen to a complete half-hour episode of a show from a time when air conditioning was an expensive automotive option. It's called The Burning Car Matter, and it comes from December 9th, 1956, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Earl Porman here. Porman? Uh, Tri-State Life and Casualty. I'm the branch office manager down here. Oh, sorry, Mr. Porman, but the answer is no. Well, this is an arson case, Dollar, and we're already having to make one payoff I'm sorry, but it'll have to wait. I'm going to get as far away from this New England winter as I can. Well, for that, I don't blame you, but there's no reason you shouldn't come Look, I've had a rough year of it. I'm tired and I'm cold. And unless I can get down to where the warm, balmy breezes waft in... Dollar, I have got to have you on this case. There's a lot at stake. Now, my office is down here in... No, sir, I'm sorry. You see... Down here in Sarasota. I just can't do it, Mr. Foreman. I've already made a plane reservation for Sarasota, Florida. And this is one time I'm going to... Where did you say your branch office is? Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Tri-State Life and Casualty Insurance Company Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the burning car matter. Expense account item one, which I'd thought I was going to have to absorb myself. $129, transportation and incidentals to Sarasota, Florida. It was nearly 5 p.m. when I got there, so instead of checking into a hotel, I taxied, that's item two, a dollar even, I taxied to Earl Poorman's office in the Conroy building. 
He turned out to be a tall, lanky, easygoing fellow with clear blue eyes and a ready smile. Sit in an office and talk business this time of day? You're in Florida now, Johnny. Well, I thought from your call this was a pretty urgent matter, Mr. Foreman. It is. Arson, you said. Yeah, probably, but here's no reason we can't go out to my little shack on the key and be comfortable while we talk about it. Besides, Michael wants you for dinner. Mike? Uh, my wife, Gertrude. Oh. Uh, come on, my jalopy's right out at the curb. Come on, Johnny. Poor man was a misnomer for this man because his jalopy turned out to be a spanking new Cadillac, complete with air conditioning and all the fixings. And the shack, anything but. It was on St. Armand's Key across Sarasota Bay from the mainland, a beautiful two-story concrete and stucco job. The big yard backed on a quiet bayou, and there tied up at a private dock was a 24-foot lap strake speedboat, ideal for fishing the Gulf of Mexico. After all, as long as you're down here on expense account. Yeah, but it's charged to your company, remember? Oh. <laughs> hey, there she is at the door. Huh? The big, fat, overbearing broad I'm married to. This was another switch. For Earl's wife standing in the doorway was the cutest little trick I'd seen in a long time. Petite, pretty, and blonde... And with eyes that you noticed right away because they were almost green. Eyes that suddenly narrowed as she looked at me. And I wondered why. Johnny Dollar, did you say? That's right. Insurance investigator down here to look into those fires. Oh. Any objections? No. No, of course not. Just set your bags here in the hall, Johnny. All right, thanks. And wouldn't you like a drink after your long trip? Yeah, and you can get me one, too. Scotch, Johnny? Martin's VVO. Oh, great. Well, soda, please. Uh, sit down, sit down. Thanks. I, uh, I take it Mike isn't too interested in the insurance business, huh? Well, <laughs> uh, you know, she used to be a singer, dancer. Oh, well, this is a little different. But now, tell me all. Well, actually, I guess we ought to wait until Arnold Carr gets back. Carr? Uh, Carr Brothers, Lumber Enterprises. Arnold runs the business, and his brother Edward... Well, Ed just shares the profits. Real black sheep of the family, from what I've been able to learn. Oh. Anyway, they have yards all over the state. There's one here in Sarasota, one up the coast of ways at Fort Pierce, and still another at Arcadia. That's about 40 miles inland, just east of here. And there was one up in Orlando. Was? Completely destroyed by fire a couple of weeks ago. And a $120,000 claim has been filed. A hundred and... Wow. That's where Arnold Carr has been. In Orlando, trying to clear things up. Here's your drink. Oh, thanks. Here, Earl. Yeah. Well, to the gods and goddesses and us. But shouldn't I be up in Orlando then? Uh, Arnold's on his way back here now. He lives here. He just went up there to arrange for clearing off and selling the property. You mean he's planning to just pocket the money? If Tri-State pays off, I mean. Looks like it. But I take it you suspect arson. Yes, Earl suspects arson, Johnny, and so does Arnold Carr. At least he says he does, but they have no reason. No? How about the other fires? Or attempted fires? Oh, where? At Arcadia, for one, but they got it out in time. At least that's the way Arnold Carr reported it. The way he Let tells it... Let me is... tell it, Mike. Oh. There was another at the yard here in Sarasota. Arnold himself discovered it one night when he was just driving around. But nothing to indicate it was attempted arson. No, well, and the authorities up in Orlando found no indication of it there. Mike, you know as well as I do that a lumberyard fire will obliterate signs of arson better than any other kind of fire in the world. Yeah, but she has a point, though, Earl. Unless there's some evidence of arson. Of course. 
Yeah, why send for me? Well, mostly because... Actually, because Arnold Carr suspects him. But he's given you no real reason. None at all. I think he has a real reason, but he just won't tell us. Wait till you see him. He's going to call when he gets in. We'll run over to his place on Longboat Key. What about his brother? Edward, did you say? I've never met him. He's always stayed in Orlando. I was wondering if he might tell things that Arnold is holding back. Uh, Ed, Edward Carr wouldn't know anything. Uh, you can never be too sure. Ed, look, why can't you agree with me for a... Uh, that must be Arnie now. Excuse me. Hello. Uh, this is Arnold Carr. Oh, hi, Arnie. Uh, Johnny Dollar arrived, so we'll be... Well, here, I'll let you talk to him. Here, Johnny. Uh, no. Okay. No, Earl, listen. What? I told you before it was arson. It was arson again tonight. Tonight? What's that? Uh, Arcadia just went up in flames. The whole yard. Good Lord. Did you hear that, Johnny? Yeah, I heard it. Can you prove it was arson uh, tonight in Arcadia and before in Orlando? I I have proof. Well, Arnie, we'll be over just as fast no. as... No. What? No. Wait for me there at your home. Well, but look now. You mustn't come here. And I, I mustn't stay here because I... I... Uh, now, listen, man. You, uh, uh, Arnie? Well, I guess he's ready to tell us now. A suspicion began to grow in my mind. A suspicion that Mike apparently shared with me. That Arnold Carr himself might be responsible for the fires. After all, he was the only one who had seemed to know about the two unsuccessful attempts. He himself had planted the idea of arson. He'd lost no time in filing claim for the Orlando burnout. But Earl said I was wrong. Arnold was too honest a man. Earl had also said we were only 15 minutes from Carr's home. So when half an hour passed, we called him back. Got a busy signal. After the fourth try, the three of us took off in Earl's cab. As we pulled into Carr's driveway, we could see him through the picture window, sitting at his desk, telephone in hand, apparently engrossed in a call. Then, as we walked up to the door, I noticed something else. Arnold Carr looked enough like me to be my brother. Maybe that explained Mike's reaction when she first saw me. Hey, Arnie! Can't you see? He's on the phone in there. Well, the least he can do is hear his own doorbell. Carl, wait. Hmm? Good Lord. What's the matter? Through the window. Oh, no. Earl? Stand back. Earl, for heaven's sake, what is it? Couldn't you see from out there? No, what's wrong? I... Well, Johnny. Right through the forehead, Earl. Looks like a thirty-eight. Before I could stop him, Earl took the phone out of the dead man's hand and called headquarters. Mike turned pale and slumped into a chair. And I gave the place a quick rundown, checked doors, windows, etc. A few minutes later, an officious young sergeant named Larkin arrived and took over. 38 caliber, straight through the middle of the forehead. Were all three of you here when it happened? Mr. Foreman, Mrs. Foreman, and uh, who are you? The answer to your first question, Sergeant, is no, none of us was here. And this is Johnny Dollar, insurance investigator. Hiya. You insurance guys work pretty fast. You related to Mr. Carr? No, why? You look a little like him. Who busted in the front door? The killer? I did. When we drove up, we saw Mr. Carr sitting there at his desk. We rang the doorbell and knocked, but... And when he didn't move, you took things in your own hands and busted in, huh? That's right. You haven't moved anything, have you? No. Except I took the phone out of his hand to call you. Dollar, if you're any kind of investigator, you should have known better than let him touch anything. Now, now, let's see. The shot must have come from somewhere near this window by the fire. Now, sure, here we are. 
Bullet hole right through the pane. Bullet was fired from outside. You're sure, Sergeant? Sure, I'm sure. Look for yourself. You call yourself an investigator? Hey, Cummings, Willway. Check the area around that window beside the chimney out there for footprints. Maybe an empty cartridge case. Now, you folks get out of here so I can call Doc Hanley over and get on with my investigation. And no, Dollar, I don't need any of your help. Well, thank you, Sergeant. Your job is fires, not... Hey, where did Mrs. Foreman go? Out to the car. Why? Who told her she could leave? Who told her she had to sit here looking at a corpse? All right, Dollar, all right. Just be sure the three of you stick around town in case I decide to question you further. Oh, of course, Sergeant. Yeah. Yeah. Not shot by somebody standing outside? What do you mean, Johnny? Oh, I spotted that bullet hole in the window, too. So? I also noticed there were no particles of glass on the inside sill. But there were some on the outside. Yeah. The shot that made that hole was fired from inside that room to make it look as though it had come from outside. Then somebody was in there with Arnold Carr. Yeah. Either somebody he let in or who had normal access to the house. And he had to stop Arnold from talking about the fire in Arcadia. Hey, how much do you know about his brother, Edward? Nothing, really, outside of what Arnold told me. Was either of them married? Family of any sort? Arnie wasn't, but I... Arnold's death means Edward will own the business, then. Well, yes. And he lives up in Orlando, scene of the first big fire. Yes, very good heavens. Johnny, you don't think his own brother... Where can I rent a car? Take Mike's Chevy. It's in the carport at the house. But what are you going to do? Drive up to Orlando by way of Arcadia. When I got to Arcadia, only a few people were standing around the remains of the fire. One hose company was still working on it, and a couple of police were poking about in the embers. Walking toward it, I almost stumbled over a little old man sitting alone in the darkness beside a palm tree, hunched over, his head in his hands, sobbing. He didn't even look up when I stopped beside him. It's like losing part of my own life, it is. You, uh, you lost someone in the fire, sir? No, son. Only part of my life. I helped build up that yard, me and Mr. Arnie. Arnold Carr. All along, he's been worried about it. And last week, when him and me smelled smoke and come over here and put out the barrel of trash that was smoldering, he knew. Knew what? That somebody was trying to burn him out? That's why he stopped by tonight on his way home. That's why we drove over here, him and me. And I brought my gun just in case. Yeah. Well, we got here too late. It was already blazing. And when he seen the automobile pulling away... What auto? Yes, Frank, he said to me. I knowed he was the one trying to burn me out, he said. Who? Who, old-timer? Who do you mean? He, he didn't say. Then he called the fire department. And that car that pulled away, what was it? Just a auto, big white Buick. But he tied it in with whoever set the fire. Well, all he said was... I knowed he was the one. Do you know who it was he meant? Well, he told me even if I did know, I should never tell. Even the police. Well, who do you think it was? Break my word to Mr. Arnie? Uh-uh. Never, son. All right, look, old man, I'm sorry to have to tell you this. Mr. Arnie's dead. What? What, he... What, he can't be. He was... You. Huh? Ah. Uh. Maybe you thought in the darkness I would know you. But I do know you, you... Oh, now, just a minute, old-timer. Mr. Arnie's dead, it's because you killed him. What? Just like you set the fire. No, no, I'm not who you and think I'll I am. And I'll kill you, that's what I'll do. Put down that gun. I'll kill you! 
Act Two of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, in just a moment. Back in the old days, the very old days, that is, a girl named Cassandra had a corner on the Oracle Market. But nowadays, you can do some foretelling yourself. On Jukebox Jury, for example, you can help decide which of Tin Pan Alley's new recordings are destined for the hit brackets and which ones are likely to spiral all the way down to oblivion. Remember, Jukebox Jury is yours to hear on most of these same stations every Sunday. Now, Act Two of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar and the Burning Car Matter. Expense account, item three, $5.15 gas for the borrowed Chevy to keep me going to Orlando. Either the old man's eyesight was bad or he was just a lousy shot. Either way, it was okay by me. I hated to slap him down, but there was no point hanging around Arcadia trying to explain things to the local authorities. So after making sure I hadn't really hurt him, I appropriated his gun and took off fast. He'd thought I was someone else. Even I had noticed a family-type resemblance to myself in Arnold Carr. Sergeant Larkin had asked me if I was related to him. And now the old man at the fire had apparently thought I was the one who... Oh, well. I'm afraid I made the rest of the trip to Orlando in somewhat less than legal time. And at police headquarters, I barged into the office of Lieutenant Cal Hudson without bothering to be announced. So early in the morning? Sit down while I finish up report, Mr. Carr. Uh, thanks. I was trying to reach you, but we got no answer to the phone at your house. Well, that's very interesting, Lieutenant. I'm afraid I have the painful duty of notifying you that your brother Arnold down in Sarasota last night... Why did you say very interesting, Mr. Carr? Or had you already learned... Well, I'll be doggone. Yeah. You're not the first one. Who are you? Johnny Dollar, insurance investigator. I can't believe it. You... Dollar, you look enough like Edward Carr to be his twin. You even sound a lot like him. I take it you haven't located Edward yet? Well, no. Lieutenant, I think Edward Carr is the firebug we're after. And the killer. Wait a minute. Briefly as possible, I told him of Arnold Carr's phone call to Earl Poorman. His emotional upset just before he was killed. I told him Arnold had been murdered by someone inside the house, someone close to him. And that everything indicated that someone could very well be Edward Carr. That's still all just theory, Dollar, without any proof. Well, I will admit that Edward is a pretty worthless playboy living off the profits of the lumberyards. In any event, the lieutenant promised to put out an APB on Edward Carr. That was at breakfast for the two of us, item four, three dollars and a quarter. Before I left him, he gave me Ed Carr's address, 1726 Allen Place. As I expected, there was no answer to the doorbell at 1726, so I tried visiting up the street. It quickly became clear that Ed Carr wasn't very popular in this otherwise quiet, well-ordered neighborhood. Those big, noisy parties at all hours of the night, cars parked up and down the street, blocking respectable people's driveways. Yes, ma'am. You know, well... once in a while you expect a person to have callers and such. Me, I have the Ladies' Bridge Club every third Wednesday, for instance. Well, that's nice. But these are all ladies, not like some of the trash that that man and his friends have, dancing and drinking and carrying on at all hours. Yes, you mentioned cars, Mrs. You Hart. know, people like Mrs. Herford Robbins. She's awfully nice. And Janet Osterworthy. Now, she's a widow. Well, and you know, she could have her pick of anybody she liked. But does she ever look at another man? No, sir. And then there's Mrs. Mrs. Harper. Uh, yes? You mentioned cars. Do you know what kind Mr. Carr drove? Why, yes. 
was a big white one. And the make? Well, no. My husband, when he was alive, always drove a Maxwell, and I guess that's the only kind I ever got to know by name. <laughs> but Mr. Cars is white. Only I guess that isn't much help to you, is it? All the white cars here in Florida, I mean. Look. Now, even that blonde hussy who's around him all the time drives a white car. Oh, <laughs> I really shouldn't use a word like that, though, should I? But it fits... Wait a minute. What blonde, Mrs. Harper? Mr. Dollar. I don't pay any attention to people like that. Why, you'd think she owned that house of his. The way she keeps popping in and out all hours as if she belonged there. Mrs. Harper. Drives all the way up from Sarasota, too. Do you know who she is? I do not. I refuse to pay any attention to people like... And the way she dresses, too, like a newly rich chorus girl with all her fancy clothes and furs and things. How do you know she comes from Sarasota? By the license on her car, of course. Every city has its own number. You know that very well. And hers is 12WW something. And you don't know her name? Of course not. Flaunting all those expensive furs as though she bought and paid for them herself. And if there's anything I hate to see, it's a little shrimp loaded down with furs. Now, a tall person I like see. me and well, her thanks. eyes... If there's anyone I don't trust, it's a person with green eyes. Well, Thank you, Mrs. Harper. Her description of Carr's girlfriend stopped me in my tracks. That description could fit Mike Corman to the letter. Petite, blonde, green eyes, and she came from Sarasota. And then I remembered Mike's reaction when she first saw me. Her dismissal of Edward as a possible suspect. There was obvious friction between Earl and Mike, too. I figured it was just normal in a couple who'd been married for a while. But now... Item 5, a dollar thirty phone call from the nearest booth I could find to Earl Poorman at his office in Sarasota. No, she isn't, Johnny. Why? Well, do you know where Mike is? When I woke up this morning, I could hear her talking to her girlfriend, Betty, on the phone downstairs. Betty? Uh, Betty lives here in Sarasota. They used to be on the stage together, sister act, you know. Yeah, well, uh... Uh, Well, then when I went down for breakfast, she was gone. Took my car, too. I had to come here to the office in a taxi. Yeah, well, okay, Earl. Thanks a lot. Hey, yeah, now, wait a minute. How are you doing? Found out anything I ought to know about this arson and murder business? Uh, no, Earl. Nothing that you need to worry about. Liar. I sat down at a corner drugstore. That's item five, 80 cents, over a sandwich and a Coke to try to think things out. But I'm afraid I didn't like anything that I thought. Finally, I drove over to Allen Place again. I parked a couple of blocks away and walked to 1726. I rang the front doorbell, knocked a couple of times. Then I slipped around to the back door, finagled a lock on it with a little celluloid pocket calendar, finally got it open. I left it open for the sake of a quick exit if such became necessary. But I guess that was a mistake. For a couple of minutes later, as I rounded a corner from the den into the living room, I felt the barrel of a gun poked into my back. Out of town, are you? Now, wait a minute. Don't move, Eddie boy. Trying to stall off, pay me the five grand by saying you're going to be out of town, huh? Okay, so you think I'm Edward Carr. You kidding. Don't you know what happens when somebody tries to stall me? This! I don't know exactly how long I was out, but when I came to, it was dark. Except for the glow from a streetlight outside. And what roused me was the sound of footsteps, feminine steps, cautiously entering the back door. Then, briefly, silhouetted against a window, I saw a trim, petite figure that was all too familiar coming toward me. Then she saw me, too. Oh, darling, you're hurt. What happened? Uh, what do you think? Who did this? Who struck you? You don't know? Yes, of course. It was Tony. Because you didn't pay him soon enough for the Arcadia job. Oh, 
Here, Eddie, let me help no, you. No, no, just let me rest for a minute. I thought that was Tony I passed on the road in from Sarasota. Why'd you come over from Sarasota? To see you. I knew you'd be here. Oh, why? Why? So the police could surprise you with the news of your poor dear brother's death. But why did you come to the house? Because I hoped you'd come here, I guess. Eddie, you should have waited until I could raise the money to pay off Tony. You mean for killing Arnold, too? Of course. No. Are you trying to say you didn't kill Arnold? But I saw you from outside in the Buick. You'd swear to that, wouldn't you? I, I don't know what you... Eddie, you sound like you don't trust me. We're in this thing together. Yeah, you sure that? What are you talking about? Whose idea was it to knock off Arnold? But you had to. When he saw you at Arcadia, he, he knew that you were having the yards burned up. That's the way you figured it from the beginning, wasn't it? Now look, baby. First burn up the lumber yards and collect the insurance on them. Then convince me that you and I should have it all by putting Arnold out of the way. But you had to kill up. I don't understand you, Eddie. Yeah. And I wish I didn't understand you, Mike. Mike? Come on. Let's turn on the light. No. No. Somebody sees us. Eddie, you... Who... Who are you? Are you kidding, Mike? I... Wait a minute. Who are you? You're that insurance investigator, Johnny Dolly, that Mike told me. Let me out of here. Oh, no, you don't. You're staying right here. Mike Pullman's sister, aren't you? Well? Oh, sister. So we once did a sister act before she married that Pullman guy. Now, let, let me go. Not by a long shot. You may as well, Dollar. What? Eddie. Don't move, Dollar. Get his gun, Betty. Get it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Here, Ed. Good. Ed Carr, huh? That's right. You know, we do look alike, you and me. Yeah, sure. Enough for Betty here to have told me all I need to know. Don't believe him, Eddie. He's lying. I heard, No, baby. Eddie, I, I thought he was you. Don't just Sure, see sure. Why'd you come up here anyway? Because Mike told me that Dollar was coming up here. You've been shooting off your mouth to her, too? She knew about us. She thought you might have something to do with the fire. She was my friend. She was trying to get me out of this whole mess, and I wish I'd listened to well, her. Well, it's too late now, baby. Eddie, what are you going to do? Now i got to get rid of both of no! you. No! And figure some way to shut up Tony's mouth. Ed, please! You know you'd never get away with a car. Oh, no, I'll call him. That's what I'll do. Yeah, Betty, and he'll come here to get his money. Then I'll call the police, see? Tell him to come right away. Tell him I found out about you having Tony start the fire. What? That's right, that you had him burn up the yard so there'd be even more money for you to bleed from me, like all the dough you got from crazy. me already. You're crazy, Ed. I'll tell the police to meet me here. And when they come in, it'll just be in time to see me kill Tony in self-defense. After getting here too late to save you, I'll tell them. You're out of your mind. They'll check that gun of yours so fast. And that'll prove it. Because the only shot out of my gun will be the one that gets Tony. This gun of yours is the one that's going to knock you two off. And they'll think it's Tony's. Oh, Eddie, please, you're drunk. Are you crazy? Crazy to save my own life? To keep you and Tony and Dollar from putting a noose around my neck? If you think that harebrained scheme of yours will ever work, you're it's off your It's got to work, because it's my only chance. So it's going to work now. <laughs> Thanks, Lieutenant. I'm afraid I was too late to save it, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. But Eddie Carr will live to face a jury. What brought you here anyhow? I did, Johnny. Mike, stay there. Stay right here, Mike. I know. I don't want to see it. She was my friend. Where's Earl? I came alone. When I talked to Betty this morning, I knew your suspicions about Ed were right because... You see, I knew Betty and Ed were going together. Earl didn't know. Yeah. 
Maybe you better call him. Expense account item six, $9.80, gas and incidentals for the drive for the two of us back to Sarasota. Remarks? Betty, of course, has already paid for her part in the deal. And I guess it's pretty obvious what'll happen to Ed Carr and Tony Ricardo. The insurance money in the car estates will be distributed according to Florida law. Further remarks? The apparent friction between Earl and Mike was only part of a normal married life. They're a pretty nice pair. Oh, and I thoroughly enjoyed three days of fishing in the Gulf, thanks to Earl. Expense account total, including all the incidentals I could think of, $385.26. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a case with a real twist. One that I think will just about tear your heart out. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood. It is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote tonight's story. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Harley Bear, Victor Perrin, Bob Bruce, Harry Bartell, Vivi Janus, Tony Barrett, and Junius Matthews. Musical supervision is by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Dan Coverly speaking. That guy really did sound a little like Johnny. The Burning Car Matter, from the late autumn of 1956, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. It's comedy time now, or rather, joke time, because it's a Bob Hope show from the 1950s, and it features a very typical Bob Hope opening monologue, a steady stream of one-liners from a master of the one-liner. His guest star is David Niven, just a few years away from his 1959 Best Actor Oscar for Separate Tables. That's a movie we don't hear much about nowadays. And here's a factoid for you. David Niven is the only person ever to host the Oscars and win an Oscar in the same year. The two stars managed to do a send-up of the history of radio, somehow without ever mentioning Guglielmo Marconi, they do mention radio host Arthur Godfrey, the Santa Anita racetrack, singer Bing Crosby, President Silent Cal Coolidge, and the dashing actor Errol Flynn's Woman Chasing. The Bob Hope regulars, Jerry Colonna, Bill Goodwin, Les Brown, and Margaret Whiting are all on hand, and Maggie sings a technically difficult old-fashioned ballad. She was a singer's singer. Originally broadcast over NBC on March 5th, 1954, and heard here from the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service March 3rd, a year later, here is The Bob Hope Show with guest star David Niven. 
Forces Radio and Television Service presents the Bob Hope Show with Les Brown and his band of renown, and yours truly, Bill Goodwin. And now here he is, Bob Hope. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. No, but I've just returned from a trip through Minnesota and Canada, and I'll never know why we criticize our California weather. It was almost as cold up there. <laughs> no, I had to make the whole trip with one arm down in the baggage compartment. My hand was frozen to my suitcase. <laughs> I played Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Saskatoon, uh, Saskatchewan. That's pretty tricky, but once you learn how to say it, it pays off. You never again have to buy dental floss. Some people never learn how to say Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. One guy tried for years, but he couldn't say it. He finally did the only thing he could do. He moved to Montreal. <laughs> now, Saskatoon is way up in northern Canada, but it's easy to get there. You can go by plane, train, dog sled, or make a wrong turn on the freeway. When I, when I arrived, they gave me a wonderful welcome, but I didn't like the way the papers wrote it up. The headline in the Saskatoon Daily News said, American ham arrives with some Canadian bacon. <laughs> pretty cold up there. I saw a Pontiac and the Indian was wearing earmuffs. <laughs> White-haired Indian. <laughs> I got back here just in time to go to all the big department stores around town and autograph copies of my book, Have Tucks Will Travel. And it was a lot of fun, although I didn't like the attitude of one department store manager. When I arrived to autograph the books, he looked at my nose and said, I see you brought your ballpoint with you. <laughs> Autographing copies of your book is a favor you have to do for the publisher. Well, it's not exactly a favor. It's part of the deal. Let's face it. We have to get the money back somehow. <laughs> One kid was standing there for an hour just staring at me. I said, aren't you interested in reading my life story? He said, no, I'd rather watch it on Dragnet. <laughs> but my book is really exciting. It tells the story of a poor barefoot boy in Cleveland who was determined to be a comedian regardless of his talent. And I'm sure you'll like Have Tucks Will Travel. I tell all about my education, all the awards I've won in show business, and all the beautiful girls who are crazy about me. Page two is exciting, too. <laughs> the New York Times printed two reviews of my book. The first one said my writing ranked with O. Henry. The second one said not the author, the candy bar. One of the editors of Reader's Digest phoned me and asked if my book could be boiled down. I said it could. He said, that's fine with all this smog. We hate to throw it in the incinerator. <laughs> Jack Benny read my book with uh, tears in his eyes from strain. He was trying to finish it before the clerk made him put it down. I still have a few books left, so if any of you haven't got your copy, please see me after the show. I'd love to get my car back in the garage. Thank you very much. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce our guest for this evening, Mr. David Niven, right here.
Oh, thank you, Bob. That's a very nice introduction. But why the mister? Well, David, I thought it was appropriate. I consider you a perfect gentleman. Well? A distinguished actor. Well? And besides that, I like you. (laughs) Easier, I'll hide your tweed monocle and you'll be drummed out of the Deborah Carr fan club. (laughs) You'll never get into the Huntington Hartford Theater. Well, now that he's um, exchanged a few unpleasant peasantries, what type of show are we going to do, Bob? Well, I was just thinking, David. You know, they're giving out Academy Awards for the movies, Emmy Awards for television, but radio doesn't get its share of recognition. And you know, radio will soon be celebrating its 50th birthday. 50th birthday? Mm-hmm. Milton Bell been around that long? <laughs> yes, he went to medical school with Joyce Jordan. <laughs> Together we're going to do the history of radio tonight, Bob. That's right, David. We're going all the way back to 1900, when Hollywood was just desolate, flat country. Then the movies came along, radio came along, and Hollywood became the glamour capital of the world. Yeah, and then Santa Anita came along, and it became flat country again. <laughs> well, David, shall we plunge in and tell the story of the magic wireless from its infancy right up to today? Now, I'm all set, Bob. Let's go. Music, lads. <laughs> Radio had its first glimmerings away back at the turn of the century. In the science laboratory at Yale University, an excited young student rushed up to his professor and said, Look, professor, I've found it. What is it, my boy? Oh, I've created a vacuum tube with a filament that emits electrons across a magnetic field so that high-frequency modulation up to 18,000 megacycle causes sonic alternating audio amplification. I'm sorry, folks, but what else could I do with him? <laughs> That young student, of course, was Lee DeForest. On May 1st, 1903, radio was born. DeForest invented the audion tube. And on May 2nd, 1903, radio received its greatest setback. What's that? DeForest dropped the tube. <laughs> but Lee DeForest continued his labors on the electron tube, and in 1905, at a meeting of the stockholder of his company, he made an announcement of tremendous importance. Gentlemen, I'm happy to say that I've finally perfected the first radio tube. Here it is before you. A huge rectangular tube, and only one thing is stopping us from putting it into mass production for use in radio. What's that? We can't get Arthur Godfrey's picture off it. Bob, Bob, how could Arthur Godfrey's picture possibly be on the radio tube? Is that historically correct? That's pretty close, David. My writers looked the whole thing up in the racing form. We can't dispute that, can we? Well, what, what happened next, Bob? Aerials began appearing on rooftops. And it was dangerous, David. I'll never forget my Aunt Minnie got a couple of electric wires crossed one night. What happened? She became the first woman in Cleveland to have a crew cut. <laughs> What's the next milestone of radio, David? The presidential election of 1924. Here's the first president to speak on radio. Thank you, Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> The world's fastest human is interviewed after running the four-minute mile. Thank you, Roger Bannister. <laughs> or Rin Tin Tin. <laughs> but getting back to our story, in the 1920s and 30s, radio grew by leaps and bounds. Yes, everybody was tuned in. You were entertained by such famous names in sport as... <laughs> Babe Ruth. <laughs> Jack Dempsey. Errol Flynn. (laughs) 
Yes, the average family could sit home in the parlor, switch on a receiving set, and hear the great stars of the era. Crosby sure sounded good in those days. <laughs> Radio soon became a giant of the entertainment field. It brought us fine drama, the best music, great comedians. In 1931, we were all thrilled by the lively singing of a young man named Eddie Cantor. If you knew Susie like I know Susie, ooh, ooh, oh. I'm sorry, that's the best I can do. <laughs> that was Eddie Cantor, strange through Anthony Heaton's Homburg. <laughs> About the same time, another great star thrilled the nation. <laughs> That's right, he's now known as Evelyn and her magic violin. You know, Bob, I never realized there was so much to radio. Oh, these are only a few highlights in the field of entertainment. Radio was also used in industry and commerce, and it played a very important part in World War I. World War I, let's do some of that. Okay, music, Les. Time, the closing hours of the war, November 10th, 1918. The German armies are collapsing on all fronts. For the first time, radio is used as a means of military communication. Achtung! Achtung! General Ludendorff calling General Puffenhausen. Come in, Rudy. Yavo, Yavo, I am here. Can you hear me? Nine, I can't hear a thing. What's the matter? You're talking to a Wiener Schnitzel or something? <laughs> what you want, Hermann? Something's gone kaflui. <laughs> I can't, I can't find the army anywhere. <laughs> What do you suspect, my general? Oh, I don't know, but something is definitely for stonken in Berlin. <laughs> oh, 26,000 men, where could they all... Where could they all disappear to? Oh, I know. I know where they might be. Where? Mademoiselle for Mama, dear's Oh, I called her up, didn't there. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> find the army, you just gave me a great idea. But, Mademoiselle from Armitage. <laughs> I get my helmet and go with you. <laughs> well, well, what happened next in Radio Bar? Well, we'll continue our history in a few minutes, David. After this number by a star of present-day radio, Margaret Whiting, singing Melody of Love. There she is.
Bill Goodwin. You know, someone once said humor is the true democracy, and that's why we Americans can smile when we tell the stories of the legendary heroes who helped to build our country's great institutions and industries. Like old Pecos Bill of the cattle industry. Now, when Bill was a year old, he was crawling around the ground one day when a swarm of mosquitoes swooped down. Bill crawled under a fat rendering kettle, and when the first mosquito hit it, his stinger went clear through. Quick as a flash, Bill whipped an axe out of his diaper, and he bent the stinger back like a nail. He did the same to the other mosquitoes till the outside of the kettle looked like a plum pudding filled with raisins. When Bill was 14, he invented the lariat, the roundup, and the branding iron. And his special brand has become the heritage for all American cattlemen, IXL. Yes, it is a democracy which lets us tell stories of such legendary heroes with a twinkle in our eyes and a chuckle in our throats. So long as we continue to laugh together as a people, ladies and gentlemen, we will live together as a nation. Should we continue our history of radio? Yes, David. Now let's look at radio as an advertising medium. Well, you mean commercials? That's right. And here's the man who invented the first commercial jingle. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells? What? No big at all? Well, <laughs> Professor Corona, right? the man who invented rhyming commercials, Professor. That's right, Hope. I'm the first man who ever found a rhyme for orange. Well, that's remarkable, Professor. How did you rhyme orange? Squeezed it. <laughs> and I rhymed juice with spruce. <laughs> Professor, you're off your trolley. Yes, but I'm not worried. Why not? I've got a transfer. Professor, do you really know anything about radio commercials? Everything. I introduced the paper made pen sweethearts to each other. And single-handed, I put over one of the most popular products on the market today. Chibaba, chibaba cigarettes. <laughs> chibaba, chibaba cigarettes? I've never heard of them. Of course you have. Why, four out of five doctors who smoke them say, quote... Quote. <coughs> <laughs> are, they, are they good, Professor? There's no cigarette in the world like a chibaba. It doesn't have any... Ordinary cotton filter or a nylon filter, absolutely no harmless ingredients could get through the filter of a chibaba. Why, what's it made of? Cement. <laughs> Tell me, Kelowna, did you ever jump out of a window and land on your head? Why, no, don't think I ever have. Pardon me a moment. 
What do you know? It's fun. <laughs> Colonna, you're two steps below an idiot. Don't drool. <laughs> and au revoir. So long, brush brush. Well, what's next, Bob? Well, disc jockeys have become very important in radio, David. Let's show the folks how those happy record spinners operate. Music less. <laughs> now, for you early morning listeners, flakies, the breakfast food that bites back for their... <laughs> the rise and shine, boys. <laughs> hello, everybody. Hello. We're here to say hello, so hello. Hello, everybody, hello. We don't mean our revoir, but hello. We don't mean our meters, and we don't mean toodaloo. And now we're trying to say it, hello to you and you. So hello, everybody, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Second chorus. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, 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 hello. That's funny. What happened? They hung up. Well, good morning, Bob. Oh, good morning, David. Well, here we are, folks, the Rise and Shine Boys. Good morning, everybody. It's 5 a.m., but the weatherman says we'll have a beautiful day, folks. What is the weather report, Bob? Six below and more snow. <laughs> Which reminds me, folks, are you prepared for a cold snap? Get a suit of Zinglemeyer's long underwear today. The only long underwear with the electric flap. <laughs> 5.01 a.m. Folks, why wake up with a grouch in the morning? Sleep alone. Come on, sleep <laughs> Come on, sleepyhead, throw the covers off. Now open your eyes and take a good look around. Are you in the right house? <laughs> and now, and now for the first joke of the day. Tell me, Bob, how do you make antifreeze? I don't know, David. How do you make antifreeze? Hide her woolen pajamas. Oh, we're killing it And now, the makers of Wufu, the dog biscuit that tastes like a cat. <laughs> The makers of Wufu bring you the news. Hollywood, California. Yasha Heifetz is playing Beethoven tonight at the Hollywood Bowl. The winner will meet Bobo Olson. <laughs> and now a word about Dr. Nevin's reducing method. Step in, doctor. Thank you. Attention, ladies over 300 pounds. Do you have the feeling you're being followed? You are. It's you. <laughs> if you have this problem, by all means, try Dr. Niven's reducing method. It's simple, no pills, no diet, no exercise. Once a week, Dr. Niven comes to your house and beats you with a rubber hose. <laughs> and now your favorite platter spinners bring you the first record of the day. What do we play for the folks, David? The song that's number one all over the country. I've got those My Baby Done Left Me, She Ran Off With Another Guy, I Feel So Bad If I Ever Catch Her, I'll Break Her Neck, Blue. <laughs> 
taking us coming to the boys down at Firehouse Number 7. Don't forget, fellas, dab a little of Mother Murphy's brass polish on the knees of your pants, and your fire pole will always be bright and gleaming. Now <laughs> we'll play the record. Whoops, too late. Our time is up. This is the Rise and Shine Boys signing off and saying... Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. We mean goodbye. That, that took care of the disc jockeys, and I hope they forgive us. You know, Bob, we can't do a history of radio without bringing in the dear old BBC. British radio? Good idea. Here we go, David. Some Piccadilly music left. But how do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is the BBC commencing another evening's broadcasting. Our first offering of the evening is another visit with the master detective, David Niven, private eyeball, and gentleman bounder. <laughs> Thank you. Before tonight's chapter, a word about our sponsor, Father and Gay's Mutton. That mutton that makes you a glutton. Ladies, <laughs> next time you want to serve something delicious, remember that only fathering gay's mutton contains that unusual locked-in aroma. It has to be locked in once you got out and killed fathering gay. <laughs> remember, friends, there are many imitators of this fine product, but fathering gay's is the only mutton that contains genuine mutts. That's right. It comes in three delicious flavors, orange, raspberry, and cocker spaniel. <laughs> for tonight's adventure with David Niven, Private Eyeball. How do you do? My name is David Niven, Private Eye. I was sitting in my office today when the door opened and she came in. Believe me when I tell you, she was most captivating. She had honey blonde hair, blue eyes, and the deepest dimples I'd ever seen. In fact, her dimples were so deep that when she smiled, her face turned inside out. <laughs> Suddenly, this heavenly creature spoke. My husband has just been murdered. What? Yes, I stabbed him six times and then shot him through the head. I see. Who do you suspect? <laughs> I've come to you to help me to, as they say in America, beat the rap. Well, very well. Bring in the rap and I shall beat it. <laughs> Just one moment, dear lady. I'm on to you and I shall have to report you to Scotland Yard. No, no, you can't. Don't you see I'm in love with you? I insist that you kiss me. Take my lips. No, thanks very much. I have a pair of my own. <laughs> Take my lips. Oh, all right, but I shall have to wear them on my watch chain. <laughs> now, romance won't help you, my dear. I'm going to turn you in, and they shall send you up the river. You wouldn't say that if you'd kissed me once. I'm sorry, you're going up the river. Come here. Well? All ashore is going ashore. <laughs> How dare you kiss my wife? Your wife? I thought you were dead. I was, but now I'm alive again. <laughs> well, how could that be possible? I ate an extra-large portion of Fathering Gay's delicious mutton. <laughs> well, David, say, that just about wraps up our little saga of radio, and I hope somebody appreciates it. Mr. Hope, Mr. Niven... I've been listening to your show upstairs in my office, and it was wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Who are you? Well, I'm the president of the NBC network, and I want to thank you. This history of radio you've just put on will bring us millions and millions of new fans. Well, that's fine. And you're the president of the radio network? No, television. <laughs>
radio and television service. The Bob Hope Show, from AFRTS in the late winter of 1955. It came to you from the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineers are Timothy Olmsted and Jake Cherry. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. Now, you're just going to have to remember that Marshall Matt Dillon has a chancy job that makes a man watchful and a little lonely, because we've got an early episode of Gunsmoke tonight. A young girl gives her name to this episode. It's called Tara. And it comes from the fall of 1952, CBS and Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke. Smoke, starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, the story of a man who moved with it, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Anyone here? Yeah, be right out. I was just in the... Oh, hello, Marshal Dillon. Hello, Ben. How are you? That shipment come in from St. Louis? He came in on the morning train, Marshal. I was going to send the boy over to tell you. What, have you seen it yet? You haven't had a chance to open it up. Here it is. Oh, good. Well, let's see how it looks. Huh? All right. There it is. Prettiest gold watch chain I ever did see. <laughs> Ah, uh, Chester like that. Yeah. And look at the gleam on that elk stew. Yeah. Uh, Chester know you're getting this for him? Oh, no, no. It's by way of a surprise. He thinks he's got a birthday this month, sometime. Saturday's about the middle of the month, so I figure it's as good a day as anything. Give it. Yeah, morning, Miss Tara. Oh, morning, Ben. Uh, Marshal Dillon. Morning, Tara. Oh, oh, how beautiful. Is it yours, Marshal? Oh, no, no, no. It's for Chester. He's always wanted one. Oh, it's lovely. 
Ben, mm. did my hand mirror arrive? Yeah, it came in this morning, Miss Tara. Uh, can I take it now? Well, I don't know why not. It's paid for. Here. I... Careful now, Miss Tara. Came all the way from Boston, so don't drop it. Well, I won't. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye, Marshal Dillon. Goodbye, Tara. <laughs> That's a mighty pretty girl, Ben. Yes, sir. Yeah. She's blossomed out since I saw her last. Well, what owe you, Ben? Oh, be just about four dollars, Marshal. Four dollars, huh? Yeah. There we are, four dollars. Thank you, Marshal. And uh, give Chester my regards. I'll do that, Ben. Well, morning, Miss Lane. Morning, Marshal. Morning. Morning, Marshal. Hello, John. Oh, hello, Marshal. Good morning, Chester. Well, morning, Mr. Dillon. Uh, put this in the safe for me, will you? Yes, sir. How was the auction yesterday? You know, Mr. Dillon, I never did see so many horses and mules. <laughs> you buy anything? No, sir, Mr. Dillon. But Asa Welton bought that old stud horse off Mr. McGovern. No, is that so? Yeah. You know... I feel sorry for poor old Asa. Why, that stud horse has got a ring bone so bad he can't hardly walk. <laughs> well, Asa isn't very smart when it comes to horses, I'm afraid. No, sir, he ain't. And I purely hate to see him lose good money on a horse like that. Why, he paid $19 for that horse. Oh? Well, he'll make out if the stud can get him some colts. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir, I guess. That is, if he's got a mare. <laughs> yes, Chester, if he's got a mare. And if he don't... Well, sir, I just don't know. My. Chester, this evening I'm going to have supper with Kitty over at Dodge House. Will you stay here? There's no work to do, but uh, you could keep an eye on things, huh? Well, I'd be proud, Mr. Dillon. More coffee, Kitty? Uh, no, thanks, man. Yeah. Ah. You, uh, mind if I smoke? Oh, <laughs> those are the longest cigars I ever saw. <laughs> well, if it bothers Matt, you, I don't have... six nights a week at the Texas Trail, and you think I'd mind one cigar? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Matt. What? There's something been troubling me. Oh, what's that? Well, I wanted to have supper here so we could talk. Well, what is it, Kitty? Almost four months ago, you and Chester brought a little girl back into town. Daddy was dead, out in the plains. You brought her back because she couldn't stay out there alone. Well, go on. She was real sweet. Young, I guess maybe 17. You're talking about Tara Hantry? Yeah, man. I saw her over at the general store this morning. What about her? Well, she's hanging around the Texas Trail, Matt. I see her there all the time, afternoons, evenings. Oh? Well, why are you telling me this, Kitty? Well, it's no place for a girl. Not a young girl, not a girl like Tara. I don't have any say about how Kate runs the Texas Trail. If they don't want Tara in the place, Kate should keep her out. Well, Kate won't keep her out. Why should she? Tara's attractive. She's... 
Good for business. Kitty, when I brought Tara back to Dodge, Lawrence Kells and his wife took her in. They've been treating her like their own daughter. Now, it, it's not my place to interfere well, with Well, maybe them. they don't know, Matt. They're church-going people, Kitty, Kells and his wife. They try to do what's right for Tara. I'm sure they do. Matt, people like the Kells don't know the Texas Trail. They don't know the saddle bums, the spoilers, the wild ones that hang out there. Even if they did, they wouldn't see too much wrong with the man Tara's taken up with. Well, who is it? Jack Grace. Jack Grace? Yeah. Tara's keeping company with him? She has been since he came to town a few weeks back. Well, that little fool. Well, don't blame her too much, Matt. He cuts quite a figure. Long hair, buckskin shirt, Texas spurs. She's young, and his stories make for good listening. Yeah. Matt, I, I've talked with Grace, and there's something wrong with him. He's too cold, like he's dead inside. He can charm you with a, a smile, and he talks just fine, almost almost like a gentleman. But there's nothing inside him, Matt. He, he, he's empty, like a shell. All right. What do you want me to do, Kitty? Thank you, Matt. Talk to the Kells. All right. Tomorrow morning. I promise. Morning, Marshal Dillon. Good morning, Tara. Uh, we're having some lemonade. Won't you join us? Uh, well, uh... I came looking for Mr. Kells. Uh, they're both down at the church, uh, getting ready for the social tomorrow night. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Marshal Dillon, have you met Mr. Grace? Mr. Grace? Well, I know of you, Marshal Dillon. Down around Waco, several of the boys speak of you. No. Uh, uh, what did you want to see the Kells about, Marshal Dillon? Uh, maybe I could help you. I think I should talk to them, Tara. It's a matter of business. About Mr. Kells' business? The buffalo hide? Uh, no, no, no. It's another sort of thing. I, I better come back, Tara. They, they'll be home later. <laughs> well, you, you know how these church socials take planning. It, it may be late. Yeah, well, well, I'll come back then. Sorry you won't join us, Marshal. Thank you anyway, Mr. Grace. I'll walk you to the gate, Marshal. Oh, fine. I'll be seeing you again, Marshal Dillon. Maybe, Mr. Grace. I know why you came here today, Marshal. I know why you wanted to see the Kells. You do, Tara? It's about me and Jack Grace, isn't it? This isn't the time to talk about it, Tara. It's a fine time to talk about it. Now, look, Tough Tara, busy I... bodies in this town sent you over here. They don't like my keeping company with Jack. Isn't that right? They're not busybodies, Tara. They're people who are fond of you. Older than you and know more about Jack Grace than you do. Blue-nosed old gossip. Now, Tara, listen to no, me. No, you I... listen to me. For as long back as I can remember, Pa and me worked that dried-up old homestead. Alone after Ma died. He killed Pa. Came near to killing me. Look, when I brought you into Dodge, the Kells took you in. They treated you like their own daughter. Mr. Kells is a wealthy man. He's given you everything he can. And I'm grateful to him. He's tried hard to do all the things Pa would have done if the planes hadn't killed him. 
But he still can't give me the love and excitement and fun Jack Grace can. Oh, Tara, so help me. If you were two years younger, I'd put you across my knee and slap some sense into you. Now, if you hurt the Kells because of Jack Grace, or if you get yourself in trouble, I'm going to forget about this. I didn't know better. I'd say it was a lover's spat. I'll be back later, Tara. There isn't much point in that, Marshal Dillon. From what I could hear on the porch, Miss Tara seems to have said what she thinks real plain. I'll be back later, Tara. Will you tell him? I don't know why you bother, Marshal. If the Kells are ones to worry about loose reputations, they might not pay too much attention to you. What are you getting at? A U.S. Marshal who sniffs around one of the girls at the Texas Trail isn't in the best of company, and after all, everyone knows a kitty is... Now get up. And if I ever hear you've mentioned kitty again, I'll come after you. Why don't you do that? I will. Good day, Tara. Poor Jack. I'll call back for you later this afternoon. I'm sorry, Tara. I didn't mean for this to happen. You're just a big, blundering, stupid bully. Tara, please. And and if you mess up the one thing that means happiness for me, I'll help him kill you. We will return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, misreminded? Then mind you don't miss CBS Radio's Mr. Chameleon on the first of his new Friday night broadcasts tonight on most of these same CBS radio stations. Now, the second act of Gunsmoke. Told me you wanted to see me, Mr. Dillon. Uh, yes, Mr. Kells. Uh, won't you sit down, please? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Hope it won't take too long. Gretchen and I are in charge of the box store tonight, you know. <laughs> Wouldn't want to be too late. Well, it may take a few minutes, Mr. Kells. It's, uh, it's important. Oh? It's about Tara. And Jack Grace. You know about it, then? I've known about it ever since she came to town three weeks ago. They met, heaven knows where or how, and she's been seeing him most every day since. You know where she spends her time? At the Texas Trail. Yes, I know. Gretchen and I have tried every way we know, Marshal Dillon. We've both talked with Tara, but she's young and headstrong. I don't know what to do. I think she'd run away with him if we interfered again. Mr. Kells, as Marshal, this is no affair of mine, but as someone who's fond of Tara and... Well, I... I, I, I wish you'd try talking with her again. Well, we'll do everything we can. I promise you that. Perhaps, uh, perhaps Grace will get tired of her and leave Dodge. Uh, perhaps. Well, anyhow, you know I'll sure try. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much for coming over here, Mister Kelly. Sure, Marshal. You're going to be at the social tonight, aren't you? Oh, sure, sure. Chester and I'll be there. Chester'd be real upset to miss it. Good. We'll see you there. Okay, fine. Hey, 
Now, Mr. Dillon, uh, this is Miss Honeycutt. How do you? Proud to know you, ma'am. I I bought her supper box. Did you bid on any supper boxes, Mr. Dillon? Uh, No, Chester. I was late getting here. Oh, that's pity. Now, what do you do for supper? Oh, I'll make out, all right. Well, there's really enough for the three of us, Marshal, if you care to join us. Well, thank you, Miss Honeycutt, but uh, I'm looking for Mr. and Ms. Kells. Oh, they're not here yet. The parson was asking for them a few minutes ago. Mr. Kells was to have auctioned off the suppers, but they didn't come, so we went ahead without them. Oh? You sure you won't join us, Marshal? Uh, no, thank you, ma'am. I'll just wait for the Kells. Perhaps I'll walk back toward their place and meet them on the way. Well, all right, Mr. Dillon. Uh, Miss Honeycutt and I'll be right over there if you need me. I don't think I will, Chester. You just go ahead and enjoy yourself. Real pleased to meet you. Nice to have met you, Miss Honeycutt. Mind that bench, Miss oh, Honeycutt. Yes, thank you. Oh, hello, Kitty. You leaving the party before I get there? Uh, no, no. I was just walking back toward the Kells' place. They're not at the social yet, and this might be a good chance to talk to them. Oh, all right, if I come with you. Well, sure. I had a talk with Mr. Kells this afternoon. Yeah? Yeah. He knows all about Tara and Grace. Has known for a long time. Well, what's he going to do about it, man? He doesn't know what to do. Neither do I, Kitty. Look, Kitty, you're a woman. You you know about these things. You don't tell a woman she shouldn't love some man, do you? No. No, you don't. Kells has tried hard. He's done everything he can. Well, he's a wealthy man. He could send her east for a few months on a visit. St. Louis, maybe. To forget Grace? Yeah. Would it do any good? No. Oh, there's the house. It's dark. Maybe we passed them. No, I don't think so. Here. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Kitty? Yeah? Uh, maybe you better wait here, huh? Matt, what is it? The house shouldn't be dark. We didn't pass them. What are you going to do? I'm going inside. I'll come with you. All right, come on. The door's open. Oh, Matt. Matt, look. Stay here, Kitty. Shot, both of them. Oh. No wonder they were late for the auction. Kitty, go back to the church social, find Chester, have him meet me at the jail, tell Doc to come over here. What are you going to do, Matt? I don't know. Look around, maybe. Why this? What for? Who knows why people kill, Kitty? Money, maybe. I don't know. But who'd do it, Matt? Who'd kill the Kells? Someone who hated them enough or thought they had something he wanted. Bad. Real bad. Grace. Will you please get Chester and Doc? Yeah. Yeah.
Tara? Tara, are you all right? It's Matt Dillon, Tara. Are you hurt bad? Who did it, Tara? Do you know? Yes. Yes, I know. Well, who was it? Was it Grace? Oh, Matt. Matt. What happened, Tara? Tara. Mr. Kells was waiting for him when, when Jack came for me. Mr. Kells wanted to talk with Jack, he said. And, and oh. Well, go on. I don't know. I don't know. I can't help if you don't tell me what happened. But when Jack came, there was an argument. Mr. Kells told Jack to go away, leave me alone. Told him not to come back. Jack laughed. Called Mr. Kells a name, and Miss Kells slapped him. And Jack hit her. Mr. Kells tried to get his rifle in the corner. And Jack... Jack... Yeah? He shot him. He shot both of them. Then he turned and said it wouldn't have worked out for us. He was leaving. Just like that. He was leaving. You see, you'd be nothing but trouble, he said. I'm leaving, he said. Then he hit me. And... Doc will be here in a few minutes, Tara. He'll take care of you. You want me to go with you, Mr. Dillon? No, you stay here. Get me that Winchester, will you? Yes, sir. Here you are. Thank you. How do you figure to trail him at night, Mr. Dillon? I don't. I'm taking a guess, that's all. You know where he's going? Like I say, it's a guess. I won't be back to Texas. He's wanted there. Might be Abilene. Ben Thompson would cover for him there. You'll have an hour or more start on you, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, I know, but I figure to take the back country and ride hard. Maybe he'll cut his sign by morning. You'll be riding three miles to his one? I'll take the buckskin. He can last. Yes, sir. Don't you want me to follow you? I should be back by tomorrow night. You stay here and help Kitty and Doc with everything. And take good care of the girl. She needs help. Yes, sir. Good luck, Mr. Dillon.
Grace, you can't see me. Don't bother to try. Just drop your gun belt. Easy. And your rifle. Throw it down. Now keep your hands high, just like they are. You travel fast, Dylan. I didn't waste time getting to here. I know this country better than you, Grace. Roads aren't always straight. Even so, that buckskin of yours must be quite a piece of horse. He is. We'll be starting back right quick, but meanwhile, you just sit tall right where you are. Arms will get tired. Taking me back to jail and dodge. Well, what do you expect? You murdered two people just last night. Tried a third. I just hit Tara down. I don't know as I tried to kill her. You must have known I'd come after you. I figured maybe you'd start tracking me toward Texas. <laughs> I didn't give you credit to think of my head and grabbling. <laughs> I guess the joke's on me. Yeah, I guess it is. You know, I don't understand what goes on inside you, Grace. There's no point in my getting riled. You got me cold, Deck. Someone told me earlier you were just a shell, that you were empty inside. But by heaven, you are. You're crazy, Grace. Just mean, pure crazy. It's you doing that talking, Marshal. Please yourself. In a way, it's all Tara's fault, I suppose. Well, it wouldn't have worked out anyway, like I told her. All right, if I light up. Marshal? All right, but watch your moves. Uh, my makings are in my boot. Don't, Grace! <laughs> I I didn't know Kansas marshals were so fast. A Derringer up the sleeves, an old story, Grace. Yeah, but they sure are. Uh, I guess I won't go to trial after all. <laughs> no, maybe not. But you're going back to Dodge. Like they say on the posters... Dead or alive? Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. Dead or alive. Marshal Dillon, I want to thank you and Miss Kitty for everything you've done for me. Since, since... Sure. Uh, you got everything in the stage, Tara? Yes, Miss Kitty. It's a long trip, Tara. You, uh, you sure you won't change your mind? I think I'll like it back east, and St. Louis won't be as big as all this. Marshal Dillon will be late into Hay City if I don't get away now. Okay, driver. Well, uh, goodbye, Tara. Good luck. Goodbye. <laughs> 
on that. She's gone. Yeah. I don't blame her for wanting to leave, Kitty. The West took nearly everything she loved. Her ma and pa and the Kells. And her true love? Look, Jack Grace? Jack Grace is no good, but Tara gave him her heart. And she never got it all back. Perhaps you're right, Kitty, but Tara's young. She'll mend. Will she, Matt? I hope so, Kitty. I truly do. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Special music for tonight's story was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Sammy Hill as Tara and John Daner as Jack Grace, with Ralph Moody, Joe Duval, and Vivi Janis. Parley Bear as Chester and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Novelist C.S. Forrester saw in the turbulent Napoleonic Wars an ideal historical background for the exploits of a seagoing hero of his own creation, Horatio Hornblower. And now every Friday night on most of these same CBS radio stations, Michael Redgrave stars as Horatio Hornblower. Clancy Cassell speaking, and remember, Tarzan brings you his adventures Saturday nights on the CBS Radio Network. Psychological complexity, one of the big reasons we love Gunsmoke. A heart-rending episode, Tara, from November 7th, 1952. It came to you from the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey co-produces the show, and Timothy Olmsted and Jake Cherry are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org, or on Twitter at WAMU885. And be sure to visit our Big Broadcast Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Well, I just have to do it. I've been thinking about that Bob Hope show we played earlier tonight and how I mentioned that Margaret Whiting was a singer's singer. It's not really fair to leave it like that, and I want to show you what I meant. First of all, she had what every musician strives for, an individual sound. Ms. Whiting had a distinctive, lovely voice and great diction and highly accurate pitch. Then there's her way with a song, 
For that, she had an unfair advantage. Her father was Richard Whiting, and he was one of the greats of the golden age of American popular song. He was an inspiration to George Gershwin, and he composed hits like She's Funny That Way, Hooray for Hollywood, and Ain't We Got Fun. So that meant that young Margaret grew up in Hollywood, surrounded by people like Gershwin, Bing Crosby, Harold Arlen, Sigmund Romberg, and Johnny Mercer, to whom she was particularly close. Jerome Kern was Uncle Jerry, and Judy Garland was almost literally the girl next door. So when Margaret Whiting learned musicianship, phrasing, expression, she learned from the very best. And you can hear it in her performances. One of her most famous was the one she always considered to have given her her first big success. In fact, she used it as the title of her 1987 autobiography, It Might As Well Be Spring. As Miss Whiting tells the story, she was at 20th Century Fox in 1945, visiting the set of her sister Barbara's movie, Junior Miss. And the screenwriter and director, George Seaton, asked her into a rehearsal studio. He said there were a couple of people she knew there. Well, the couple of people were Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. They had just finished the score for their only original motion picture, a musical remake of State Fair. They played some of the tunes for Ms. Whiting, and they asked particularly what she thought of a song called That's For Me. Lovely, she said, but I really like the other one, that spring one. Well, Richard Rogers was a very shrewd man, and he said, That's For Me is going to be our big hit. But when Ms. Whiting's conductor at Capitol Records, Paul Weston, called her to ask about recording her next song, she asked him to call 20th Century Fox and have a listen to It Might As Well Be Spring. Now, the tune had already been recorded for the movie, and Mr. Rogers had set it as a shottish. Uh, that's a kind of brisk two-step, kind of, I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string. Sorry, this is the best I've got. Margaret Whiting, thank goodness, heard it as a ballad. Paul Weston agreed, and they recorded it that way. They were terrified when they played their record for Richard Rogers. I thought of it as a shottish, she said. We know, they said. Mr. Rogers nodded and said, Your way's better. So he rewrote the song, re-recorded it for the picture, and it became a smash hit for both Margaret Whiting and Dick Hames. In 1945, just after World War II, the disc jockey had become a big phenomenon on local radio stations, and It Might As Well Be Spring was on the air all over America. So now here it is, recorded in September of 1945, in fact, just a couple of weeks after the formal end of the war, Margaret Whiting's hit version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's It Might As Well Be Spring. I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string. I'd say that I had spring fever But I know it isn't spring I'm starry-eyed and vaguely discontented Like a nightingale without a song to sing Oh, why should I have spring fever when it isn't even spring I keep wishing 
I was somewhere else Walking down a strange new street Hearing words that I have never heard From a man I've yet to meet I'm as busy as a spider spinning daydreams I'm as giddy as a baby on a swing I haven't seen a crocus or a rosebud Or a robin on the wing But I feel so gay in a melancholy way That it might as well be spring It might as well be spring I haven't seen a crocus or a rosebud Or a robin on the wing But I feel so gay In a melancholy way That it might as well be spring It might as well be spring Paul Weston and his orchestra featuring Margaret Whiting at age 21, already a radio veteran, but now with her first big hit record, It Might As Well Be Spring, for Capitol Records in 1945. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We've got a Dragnet episode for you tonight that comes from relatively late in the series, the summer of 1955, when the show was already well-established on TV. It's one of those episodes that features some really bad guys. It's called The Big Fellow, and it comes from August 30th, 1955, AFRTS and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Detective Sergeant, you're assigned a robbery detail. You get a teletype warning you that two holdup men are heading for your city. You know they're armed and dangerous. Your job, be ready for them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, April 5th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out a robbery detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Chief Detective Thad Brown. My name's Friday. 
I was on my way back to Maranai, and it was 8.46 a.m. when I got to room 27A. Squad room. Frank? Yeah, Joe. Back here. How about it? Turn anything? Yeah, a couple of names. None of them match the descriptions. Mm-hmm. One of the mugs supposed to be in. This afternoon's mail, I said they were sending them there especially. It'll be easier when we know who we're looking for, huh? Yeah, they will. Friday, Smith? Yeah, Skipper. You got a minute? Right there. Money? Yeah. Close the door, huh? Yeah, sure, sir. Sit down. Here. Take a look at this. What is it? It's about the Merton brothers. Oh. I just talked to Leopold. Sheriff of Las Vegas. That's right. Gave me as much as he could on the Merton. Well, we checked our records. There's nothing on them here. Isn't likely. From what Leopold says, they're fresh out from the east. You name a town? No, someplace in Georgia. They're trying to run it out. Mm-hmm. Bolton, we got said they'd pull a couple of gas station holdups over there. Anything else? Yeah. At least they think so. Yeah. According to their records, the boys got into town a couple of months ago. No visible means, but plenty of money. Uh-huh. Hung around the places on the strip, gambled, drank, had themselves quite a time. Yeah. The apartment over there started to wonder where the money was coming from, put a couple of men on them full time. What'd they find out? Not much. Merton's played it cozy. They were finally picked up on a drunk charge, mugged and printed. Nothing to hold them on, so they were released. Yeah. Next morning, they skipped town, left clean. On the way out, they stopped long enough to kick in a couple of those gas station motels, you know, along the highway. Yeah. Worked pretty good. The victims make the identification right away? Yeah. As soon as they saw the pictures, sheriff's office notified Baker. Highway patrol there was waiting, but they must have gotten through before the word went out. Mm-hmm. We've been able to trace them through Barstow, Victorville, on through Pear Blossom, Little Rock. They worked hard all the way. What do you mean? Three service stations, two restaurants, one motel. Anything on them here in L.A.? Not yet. It's a matter of time. We gotta get them before then. Yeah. All the victims tell the same story. These two guys are off their rockers. The way it stacks up, they're well armed. Car they're driving is cold and they're on the needle. Hell it. Well, we got it. Leopold says they kept a couple of dates with known pushers in Vegas. As far as he could tell, there wasn't anything passed. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. That's the story. Get on it. Okay, Skipper. I told you before it's a matter of time till they try to put somebody around here in town. Yeah. A couple of crazy gunmen, high on H. Bad combination. Somebody's gotta lose. Well, let's hope it's not us. Ethan Gifford Merton, WMA, 27 years, 5 feet 8 inches, 165 pounds, and his brother, Grady James Merton, 24 years, 5 feet 6, 152 pounds, arrived in Los Angeles on the morning of April 5th. The first word we had of their presence was a hotshot telephone call reporting the robbery of a market on the corner of Santa Monica Boulevard and Monroe Street. The market owners, Mr. and Mrs. Turner Dillon, had both been pistol with. Mr. Dillon had been removed to George Street Receiving Hospital for treatment of a skull fracture. The woman had been given emergency treatment on the scene and referred to her own doctor. The description the victims gave us matched the Merton brothers. As soon as the mugshots from Las Vegas arrived, Frank and I drove out to see Mrs. Dillon. We found her in the small apartment above the store. I just talked to the doctor at the hospital. He said Turner would be all right. Yes, ma'am. Sure wonder the way they hit him. Yes, sir. No reason for it. We'd have given him the money. Turner kept telling him, take the money and leave us alone. Take the money. Didn't make any difference to him. I don't think they even heard us. We'd like to look at some pictures, Mrs. Dillon, see if you can point out the men. Oh, sure. Anything to help you catch him. Here you are, man. Think you've got him in here, do you? I hope so, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. Ma'am? Here they are. Same two. Am I going to help you get him? Yes, ma'am. Did you notice that they drove a car, Mrs. Dillon? I can't tell you for sure. We, we didn't really see until they were in the store. I see. Well, there must be something wrong with men who beat somebody up like that. You know, up here. 
Can't be a normal person. What'd they say to you? Well, told us it was a stick-up. Said to hand over the money. The bigger one, that's the same right there. Mm. He said for us to hurry up. I see. My husband opened the cash register, then he gave him what was there. The big one told him to get to the safe, hand over that money, too. Yeah. Pointed the guns at us, kind of pushed us back to the safe. Turner opened it. All the time, we did just what they said. We weren't going to cause them any trouble. Yeah. Handed them all the money, every dime. Turner kept saying, take the money, but leave us alone. He must have said it 50 times. Before I even knew what was happening, Turner was lying on the floor. He'd been hit. I got mad. I tried to get at the man myself. Didn't make any difference to him. I was a woman. They hit me, too. With the gun? Yeah, here. Right on the face. Guess they didn't hit me as hard as they did Turner. Guess they didn't. Mr. Daffy, that's the store. Did you see him go? Not too good. To tell you the truth, I was more concerned with taking care of my husband than paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. Couple of hoodlums. I don't know where men like that come from. Must be something wrong with the way they were brought up. Yes, ma'am. Truth come out, will probably be their parents who ought to be in jail, not the boys at all. Well, you might be right. Sure, it's not the boys' fault. Well, we'll settle for them. p.m. We received a communication from the FBI telling us that the Merton brothers were wanted by the state of Alabama for escape. A complete record on the two men was also sent. They'd been arrested a total of 26 times for everything from petty theft to kidnapping. According to the kickback, they'd escaped from a road gang while serving a sentence for possession of narcotics. We contacted the authorities in Alabama and asked them to forward all available information on the suspect. After talking with Captain Donahoe, Frank and I went over to the First Street Station to see Captain Waller. We asked him to supply a list of places the two brothers might turn for a narcotic contact. He gave us a list of several places in town and the names of men we could talk to. 8.16 p.m. We started to check them out. Yeah, what do we think? You seen Patsy Hayworth around? Why are you looking for him? Want to talk to him? What about? Well, if we wanted you to know, we'd ask for you, wouldn't we? You guys cops? That's right. Now, where's Patsy? I don't know. Come on. We got word that he hasn't been more than three blocks away from here in the past four years. Now, where is he? I told you. I don't know. You're not being smart, mister. Hey, back room. See you long. Yeah, as far as I know. What's he doing? Nothing different. Playing solitaire. Oh. Yeah? You want some? You Patsy Hayworth? That's right. Sit down. I know you. I don't think so. You're in the wrong room. Police officers, we got some questions for you. That don't guarantee the answers. It's a start. Go. You heard from the Merton brothers? Who? Grady and Ethan Merton. No name. You don't know them. Mm. Red Queen and the Black King, and I could turn them over. That's the baby I've been looking for. It's the first time today. Is that so? Yeah. First win. Too bad I didn't pay for the deck. I'd have made a killing. All right, now, come on, Hayworth. What do you know about the Mertons? I told you nothing. Now, why come to me? A lot of other guys in town? They're going to need eight. The way we got it, you can steer them to it. Old friends again. All right. Get your coat. Why? Let's take a ride. For what? We can't talk here. Let's go downtown. Well, it's a nice place. There's nothing wrong with right here. All right, then. What do you know? What's in it for me? Why? Well, information like that ought to be worth something. You know we can't do anything for you. Come on, let's go. Well, how long do you figure you're going to be able to hold me? Long enough. How do you make that? Well, I'll tell you. We'll take you downtown, process you, pass the word you copped out. Told us about a half a dozen people in town. Thing like that gets around, you're going to be in trouble. You'll come back with what we want to know. Well, that's kind of crummy. It almost builds the blackmail. No, you called it. We didn't. You'd really do that? We would. 
All right. You crossed out all the roads. What do you want to know about the Mertens? You know them. I met them yesterday. Where? Place down the street. When? Last night. What is it, a bar or a hotel? Hotel. Are they there now? No, we just used the room to meet. You know where they are? No. What they want? You called it H. Are you doing any good? No, I told you the truth. I'm not pushing anymore. Why'd they come to you? Heard I could turn them on. What'd you tell them? Well, I said I couldn't help them. I told them I'd try and line something up. Stall, you know. I, I don't want any part of that action. You know, if I could have a piece of it, the answer would be no. Why? Well, these guys are too far out. They must be shooting seven, eight caps a day. Got to spend most of their time cooking. They're out of their skull, these yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. You got anything that'll help box them in? I don't know. Hey, maybe the broad. What do you mean? Well, they're dragging a broad with them, a big one. Must be six, two in a stocking. You know her? I've seen her around. Where? Used to hustle drinks downtown. Got too rough for some of the managers. They tied the can to her. She's been floating for a couple of months. Ties into some guy who'll pay the bill. As soon as he wises up, she drops and goes on the prowl. She got an address? Oh, I can't name it. Some flea bag on Fifth, I think. She a hide? I don't know. She might chip you with it. Not steady enough. Mm-hmm. She's smart, you know. Honey, look, she'd do real good. One of the homeliest women I ever met. Is that so? Yeah, looks like she should be wearing a bridle. Where can we get in touch with her? Well, it's hard to say since she's running with the Mertens. Yeah. You might try the Ten of Hearts. Where's that? It's a dive on six. She used to show for the place. When they kicked her out, she went freelance. She still hangs around, I think. No. How'd you leave it with the Mertens? Huh? They gonna contact you? I don't know. They might. Want me to call you if they do? Yeah, we'd appreciate that. Okay. You got a card? Here. Thanks. I'll give you a ring. All right, Hayward. We'll hear from you, right? Yeah. There you are, you see? What? You should have banked the game. I lost. No, you didn't. Huh? You won. We returned to the office and ran the name and description of the woman through the record section. We came up with a package listing arrest for violation of section 647.5 of the Penal Code and 4220 LAMC soliciting drinks. She'd served two terms in the county jail and at the present time was not on parole. We got her address and drove out to see her. The landlady at the apartment house told us she was out and wasn't expected back at any certain time. Frank and I drove down to the Ten of Hearts, the small bar on 6th Street. We found the woman sitting on one of the front stools. Hi, honey. Like to buy a drink? Your name Jane Finletter? Names don't mean anything here. Just friends. That's all it really counts, friends. How about it? That's your name? Are you guys cops? That's right. What are you asking me for? I ain't done nothing. We're not rousing. We want to talk to you. About what? Let's get outside. Be easier to talk there. I got a choice. Not much. Okay. Henry? Yeah, Jane. Save the stool. I'll be right back. Okay. So. Right out here, we can talk in the car. Yeah. Go ahead, get in. Okay, what's the beef? You work here, do you? What do you mean this place? That's right. Uh-uh. Once in a while, I come in, have a couple of drinks, that's it. Where do you live? I've been the route, cop. You're right out here to pass the time of day. What are you after? A couple of questions. Not the power for that. What do you mean? You're not uniform. You don't send a suit out to ask about a traffic accident. What do you do with your time, Jane? Move around. Well, lay it out for me. What? When? Start first of the week, huh? Okay. Slept late Monday. Got up about 1.30. Had a bad night Sunday. Woke up with a real head. Mm-hmm. Tagged the bar on the corner. Had a couple of bloody Marys. Went home, changed my clothes, and met a friend. You want to give us his name? Ain't go any farther? Not from us. 
Nick Pfeiffer. Okay, what happened then? I was out with him until maybe 2.30. That's in the morning? Yeah. Came home, went to bed, slept until about 11.30, too. Mm-hmm. Got a call from a couple of friends who just got into town. Got their names? Same deal. Same deal. A couple of brothers. They met a girlfriend of mine in Las Vegas. She gave him my number. How about the names? Ethan and Grady Merton. Okay. Met them, had a couple of drinks, and drove out to the beach for lunch. Came back to town, had dinner. Takes us up to last night. You seen him today? No. Ethan called me this afternoon. Yeah? Said they had some kind of a business deal to take care of this evening. After that, they were going to pick me up. Where? Here, in about an hour. Mm-hmm. That the reason for the muscle, the Merton brothers? Might be. You got a game going. I'm not on their side. I want that clear. They pulled a boo-boo. They did it themselves. No help from me. Mm. As I'm concerned, they both got soft spots. What do you mean? Their skulls. Soft. They say what this business was they had to take care of? No, I mentioned something about somebody owing them money, something like that, so they were going to collect. Didn't say where, though, huh? Not to me. Mm. The way they were rigged last night, though, doesn't leave a lot of doubt. Hmm? All those guns going out to collect. Yeah. They weren't going to do it nice. We called the office and told them what had happened. Another team of men were sent out to help us cover the place. Frank and I took up our positions in the back of the bar and we waited. 1.15 a.m., 1.30, 1.45. What do you think, Joe? I don't know. Maybe they decided not to show up. That's possible. Yeah. Hey, Joe, I got an idea this morning. Yeah? Well, I was shaving. Mm-hmm. I always have trouble, you know. Try all the things they tell you. Let the lather stay on two and a half minutes. Hot water, all the things you're supposed to do. I've tried them all. Mm-hmm. Finally came up with the answer. You did, huh? Yep. Well, what is it this time? New kind of razor. New razor. Yeah. I got thinking about Faye and gave me the idea. How does that work? Faye's my wife. Yeah, I know that. She's shaving now? Oh, Joe, you don't understand. She's not shaving. No? No. See, last night she gave herself one of those home permanents, and I got the idea from that. For the new razor? Yeah. They got those permanent things for different kinds of hair, like hair that's hard to curl, medium, easy to curl. Easy, you know. I think I know what's coming here. Hmm. Well, if somebody invented a razor for tough beards, medium beards, light beards, he'd do all right. Mm-hmm. You're going to invent it, are you? Sure, I'm not going to invent it. You know how I am with those things. It's got the idea, though. That's mm-hmm. all. I'd sure like to buy one if they yeah. had them. Mm-hmm. Tough beards, find one right away. Yeah. First day. That'd be the answer. Well, here comes ours. Hmm? Looks like Lady Merton just came in, doesn't it? Yeah. Where's brother is? Might be outside. Wait a minute before we move. He's talking to the sunlighter woman. Yeah. I'm starting to leave. Let's go. We'll take him outside. Right. All right, Merton, hold right. it up. He's leaving, Joe. All right, come on. Calm down. Take it easy. Leave me alone. Police officer. Uh, take it easy. All right. Now, come on, Merton. Get up. Come on. Now, get over there by the wall. Stand still. Hmm. Joe. Luger hurt himself. Yeah. All right, put your hands down the back. What are you shoving me around for, cop? You're going to be sorry about... Where's your brother? You'll find him. 
You got a fat mouth, mister. Now, where is he? I won't lead you to him. Got him, huh? That's right. You turned him on, didn't you? You talk to me. Guys like you always causing trouble. No, you cheap bum. I don't know what he's in season. You're sure going to be sorry when he hears about this. Tell him to stay away, too. He'll get you. You can't dig far enough to get away. He'll find you and pay you back. All right, that's enough. Now, let's go. You tell her. She's going to collect interest on it. She'll be sorry. Not alone. Huh? She'll have company. The other team of men remained at the bar in the event the other suspect returned. We took Grady Merton to the city hall for questioning. Empty your pockets. Huh? Come on. Empty them out. Wallet. Change. Keys. Handkerchief. Pen knife. That's it. Let me see your arms, Merton. Huh? Come on, let me see your arms. What for? Now, there's two ways to do this. You take your choice. When did you have your last pop? You gotta prove it. That won't be hard. All we gotta do is drop you in an ISO cell and you'll be screaming for it. Sure. You get all the money you can on that. I'll book it myself. Let me see the wallet. There's nothing wrong with your reach. Mr. Pink slip on your car? Yeah. Bought it in Nevada? That's what it said. Yeah. What are those keys for? Nothing. I just like to carry them. Stand up. Now, what happens now? You hit me? Turn around. Forgot something, didn't you, Merton? Huh? Key here. What's it for? I never saw before. Hendricks Arms Hotel. Is that where you've been staying? I'm not going to say anything more. You want me to talk? It's got to be with a lawyer. All right. I know my rights. You can't make me say nothing more. You don't have to. Huh? We got all we need. We had Grady Merton taken to the main jail and held to answer charges of violation of Section 211 PC. 3.26 a.m., Frank and I left the office and drove out to the Hendricks Arms. It was a large private home in the Crenshaw area that had been converted into a hotel. Frank covered the back entrance to the building, and I walked up the steps. You've got a good reason coming around here this time of night. Police officer, can you tell me who's registered room 5C? What for? Police business. Listen, mister, this is a clean place. There's no trouble. Now, that's the way I want it. That's the way I want it to Yes, stay. sir. Now, who's in room 5C? A couple of guys. What are the names? I don't know. Smith or something. White rented the room to him. Only seen him a couple of times. All right. Does one of them look like this picture? Uh, come in here where you get some light, huh? All right. All right. Let's take a look. Oh, is the fellow here? That's right. Hmm. Well, yes. Yes, that's one of them. Yeah. Is he in now? Well, I wouldn't have any way of knowing that. Tenants come and go as they please. See, as long as they don't let the water run, don't have no loud parties, we don't bother. Where is the room? It's the third floor rear. Okay. This hall go to the back door? Yeah, you got to go through the kitchen. See, can you tell me what this is all about? They better if we didn't. Gonna be in shooting? I don't think so. Well, if there is, I can give you a hand. I got a twelve gauge in the room. I used to hunt ducks. I, I can get it if you give no, me a sir, hand. No, sir, that won't be necessary. All right, Frank. Yeah. See here? Don't know yet. Uh-huh. Is there any back stairs? Yes, sir. Right through there. Looks like a closet, but you open another door and you can go on up. All right, sir. Do you have a key to the room? Yeah. yeah. Here you are. Want me to go with you? 
Might be better if you stayed here. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll get my gun and guard the front door. He won't get out. I'll guard it. This is down this way. Yeah, easy. Behind you, Joe. All right, what are you doing? This is a hijack. What are you guys doing here? Come on up. How'd you get to me? How'd you do it? We did. I should have killed you all the time in the world, and I didn't do it. I should have killed you. Yeah, you should have. Perfect shot, and I couldn't do it. No reason at all. Wouldn't have cost me any more. That's so? Yeah, sure. They never executed anybody in this state for killing a cop. Wouldn't have cost me any more. You've got a bigger bill than you can pay now. Come on. Department 98, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Ethan Gifford Merton and Grady James Merton were tried and convicted of robbery in the first degree, five counts, and received sentence as prescribed by law. Robbery in the first degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of from five years to life. Because of the viciousness of their crimes, their sentences were set to run consecutively. A hold was placed on them by the state of Alabama in the event they are paroled. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Herb Ellis, Virginia Gregg, Vic Rodman, Bert Holland. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Dragnet, The Big Fellow, from the summer of 1955 and from the big broadcast. You may have heard the Dragnet announcer mention Chesterfield as the sponsor of that episode. It's been nearly 50 years since President Nixon signed the law banning tobacco advertising on radio and television. So we spared you the commercials. We had to, by law. But for those of you eager to get your radio jingle fix and before anybody bans soft drink ads... Here's a vintage one, probably from the mid-1970s. It's a curious combination of bluegrass music and an announcer with a New York accent. Hey, all you have to do to like it is try it. Hey, all you have to do to like it is try it. Oh, it's so good. 
stinking America. Dr. Pepper may be America's most misunderstood soft drink, but not for long. Gotta love Madison Avenue, a Dr. Pepper radio jingle, probably from the 1970s. Actually, the father of bluegrass, the great Bill Monroe, recorded a different Dr. Pepper jingle around that time. And if you have a copy of it, please let us know. We'd love to hear it. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. You're listening to a big broadcast show that we recorded a few years ago, because tonight was to have been part of our spring membership campaign. But we've paused that for a while. We'll hear brand new episodes beginning next Sunday, but please... If you love the big broadcast, and if you depend on it, as so many of our listeners do, especially now, then please, show your support with a contribution to WAMU. You can give now at WAMU.org. And thanks. When we hear, dum, da dum, dum, we know it's Dragnet. And for people of a certain age, that means only one thing, and it's not the opera William Tell. It means the Lone Ranger rides again. There's no getting around that Rossini music, and there's no getting around the Indian sidekick Tonto's barely literate diction, although his intelligence and virtue and courage are usually on ample display. But it's a real old-time Western. People say tarnation and what in blazes, as well as redskin and engine. And yes, it's a white actor playing Tonto. The show had a phenomenal run of nearly 25 years. It overlapped the adult Westerns like Gunsmoke and Tales of the Texas Rangers with its decidedly non-adult content. Here's an episode from the end of 1939 that gives the mostly young audience a little history lesson along with the adventure. It's called Telegraph Lines Cross the Nation, and it came from the syndicated series The Lone Ranger. horse with a speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger. Thank you. 
No greater champion of justice can be found in the pages of history than the masked rider of the plains. It was he who brought law and order to a lawless frontier. It was his strength and courage which protected the early settlers from outlaws and hostile Indians. And it was his knowledge of the country which made it possible for the pioneers of progress to win their battle against the wilderness. Return with us now to those thrilling days when the West was young. From out of the past come the thundering hoof beats of the great horse Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again. Come on, Silver! We're heading west to Fort Bridger! Someone's waiting on the trail ahead! Oh, Silver! Hawaii! The 1860s had scarcely begun when, following close upon the inauguration of the Pony Express, still another important project was undertaken that would bind the East and the West even more firmly. Gentlemen, I have great news. We have been successful. Today, Congress has voted $400,000 to help us with the expenses of our venture. I can promise you this. Before winter is here, Western Union will have linked the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific with the first telegraph wire ever to span a continent. Come on! Get a move on! Face them poles! String up the wire! Hustle, you loafers! We're on our way to Fort Bridger! Look at it, Tyler. Ah, a thin copper wire to carry messages across a wilderness. It calls for men with courage to undertake a venture like this, Kimasabi. That's right. Before they finish, they'll have to meet and conquer stampedes, drought, storms, mountains, Indians, a thousand other obstacles. Ah. But there in those crews are the men who can. Despite these obstacles, the telegraph was strung across country with amazing speed. While one party worked westward from Omaha, a second erected poles and stretched wire eastward from San Francisco. Fort Bridger had been chosen as a point where both parties would meet, and it had become a race to determine which would arrive there first. But as the goal was neared, certain men found that the completion of the telegraph would be contrary to their interests and... We heard you was looking for us, Mullins. I have been. What did you want? Let's get a table. There's one. Come along. Well? Sit down. What's on your mind? Don't pretend you don't know, Red. I thought you and War Club were such excellent friends. If I remember correctly, just a month ago, you gave me your word his braids would hold up those Western Union crows. Well, they haven't. They've done what they could. It couldn't have been much. No? Well, they sure hacked down poles aplenty. Yeah, which probably delayed the telegraph all of 24 hours. You know what I wanted? I wanted rage on the camps. Oh, Cloud wouldn't risk it. Too many good engine fighters with him. So that was a waste of time. Well, Jake, what's your excuse? You mean, why didn't I keep him from getting supplies? What did you think I meant? All right, I'll show you why I didn't. Here, look here. Another inch to the right, and I'd cashed in my chips. Got drilled, huh? Who did it? Tex Morgan. How come? Caught me trying to fire their wagons. 
it hadn't been too dark for him to recognize me, and if I hadn't lit out pronto, I wouldn't be here now. Too bad. Huh? You being funny? If I am, I don't feel it. You know what this thing means to me, what it means to all of us. The telegraph must be delayed until after winter sets in and the miners close down their claims. That's when the smelter at South Pass will have more gold on hand than any other time all season. Yeah, but what are you... Wait. Neither of you seems to understand the situation. We can strike at the guards and make away with the gold. That won't be difficult. But we can't escape to the north or to the south. Our best chance is to the west. And if they connect up the telegraph to Fort Bridger... They can put the alarm on the wire within five minutes of the holdup. Within 30 minutes, every army post east and west of South Pass could have men on the trail. We'd be blocked in every direction. We'd be finished. Them Western Union crew should be done within a month. And no freeze up in sight. It'll come. It's you almost any time now. But that doesn't mean we can just sit back and hope it arrives before the line's finished. What can we do? We tried most everything. And would have succeeded if it hadn't been for one man. You mean? Tex Morgan. He's poisoned. Just so. And that's where we've made our mistake. We've tried to delay the work, but have done nothing to get rid of the one man who's done more than anyone else to spoil our plans. Boss, I reckon I savvy. If you don't, I'll make it clear. Forget everything else, but get Tex Morgan. The progress of the telegraph line was an interesting thing to observe. First men dug post holes, following the route of the old Oregon Trail. Behind them came others, unreeling the wire upon the ground. Still others distributed the poles, and bringing up the rear came that part of the crew whose duty it was to erect the poles and attach the wire. Tex Morgan, scout and troubleshooter for the entire organization, was responsible for the safety of the laborers. Ho, boy, ho, ho there, ho. Hi there, Tex. Hello, Buck. Well, how do you like it? By nightfall, we'll have done close to 20 miles today. Not bad, huh? <laughs> Boy, you're just ripping along. Bet the fellas working east in Salt Lake City can't do no better. We'll beat them to Fort Bridger yet, wait and see. Uh, where you been, Tex? Back trailing? Uh-huh. There's been something I wanted to tell you. Keep your eyes peeled. There's trouble in the wind. And it ain't just engine troubles, either. Yeah? Somebody don't want this line finished. Tex, I ain't sure I savvy. I ain't either. But you said that... All I can tell you, Buck, is the little I know. A couple of days ago, I talked with a friendly Indian. Said his name was Tonto. Told me some skunk, uh, a white, had been trying to get War Cloud to attack our camp. We're going to be raided? Nope, I reckon not. Tonto said War Cloud weren't looking for no trouble. Mm, thank gosh for that. But it shows somebody don't like us, and it ties in with a couple other things too. Take that load of poles we lost for in the river. Looked mighty funny. And last week, one night last week, some army tried to set fire to our supplies. We're just lucky he didn't, and he got away. My thunderation, Tex. Why in blazes should anybody be a Guinness? Don't ask me. But you just... You know as much about it now as I do. So watch things. We can't... Hey, there! Who's this? Whoa, 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 that fellow. Whoa, whoa, steady there, whoa. Yeah, which one of you gents is Tex Morgan? Well, that's me, I guess. Looking for me, mister? Well, if I can talk to you alone... Hey, what is... Go ahead, Buck. I'll talk to him. Well, I'll see you later. All right, let's have it. Tex, I heard somebody tried to burn up your supplies. Huh? Who told you that? That's my business. Look here, mister. Hold it. Where and how I heard it is my affair. I just dropped by to see if maybe you wouldn't like to know where to find that gent. The one trying to burn our freighters? Right. Where is he? If I take you where he is and point him out, 
What's in it for me? What's your handle? That ain't none of your business, neither. I'll tell you what. Take me to the polecat, and I'll see you get paid what it's worth, which is plenty. <laughs> You're good. But if you don't, hmm? I'll blast you out of that saddle. Hey, you didn't have to draw on me. I don't take chances, and I want that hombre bad. How far we have to ride? Just this side of South Pass. And get moving, friend. I'll be right behind you. Get up. Come get on, up, boy. Get, get up. up. It was the following day that the Lone Ranger and Tonto rode their horses at a trot down a narrow trail that led in the direction of the construction camp. On their right and extending as far as they could see, a cliff towered above them. Suddenly a voice hailed them from a ledge overhead. Hi there! You fellas below! Hold up! You here? Someone calling to us. Who's oh, 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 oh. oh. Where are you? Up on this hill, stranger! What do you want? You acquainted with a fella named Homestead? I am. Want to deliver a message to him? That depends on the message. What is it? Plenty important. He'll take you for getting it to him. Well, will you or won't you? If it is important, yes. But why don't you? You'll find out that when you're in it. It ain't private. I got it here in an empty can of tobacco. Let's have it. <laughs> there she goes. Him throw can. Right. Steady, boy. Uh, Steady. Me, me get him. Give it to me. Uh, here. Here, Cam. Hello up there. Hello. Him not answer. Because he's cleared out. What matter? Plenty. Whoever that fellow was, he knew what he was doing when he chose this place. It would take us three hours to circle the cliff and make our way up to that ledge. Uh, we'll have to take up his trail later. Right now, this message must get to Halstead. Who, him? The engineer in full charge of construction for Western Union. Oh. And when he reads what's here, there'll be fireworks. Let's go, Kimosabe. Get him up, Scout. Come on, Silver, come on. Tom Halstead, the engineer, had been riding from crew to crew, asking questions of each. Finally, he came to Buck Goodwin, the foreman to whom Tex Morgan had mentioned his suspicions just the day before. Buck, come here. Oh, howdy, boy. I see you right up. What's new? I'm looking for Tex. Have you seen him? Yesterday, not since. Why? He was supposed to report to me last night and didn't. I'm worried. <laughs> Shucks, boss. Tex ain't nobody to worry about. There's a gent can handle himself anywhere. Quit your fussing. Whatever Tex is doing, you can bet he's right as rain. I wouldn't worry about that hombre in any kind of a tight place. He's one of them gents comes up topside no matter what happens. Take my word for it. I've known him longer than you. We've got to get the telegraph to Fort Bridger before the month's out. Sure, we all know that. And we're getting there, ain't we? Yes. Without Tex, we wouldn't have had a chance. Uh-huh. The way that feller's kept trouble from us has been a wonder. Yeah, but now... Anything's happened to him, I... We'll still make up, but nothing has. Why don't you ride back to headquarters? Wouldn't surprise me if you found him there waiting for you. You may be right, Buck. I hope you are. Just the same, I... Buck, what in blazes are you doing? What you'd better. Get my gun handy. Look at these fellas coming. One's masked and the other's a redskin. What the... Oh, oh, Silver. Oh, Scott. You! There's no need for that gun. Paul said, what do you want to? Give him the message for you. Read it. 
Who gave you this? Read it. What's in it, boss? Let him finish. But I... Raise your hands. I won't. Buck, they don't get their hands up fire. All right. Stranger, you and the engine back. Better get going. Get him up, Stout. You... Take it. Hell, Silver, how Buck, did he hit you? Just knocked the gun from my hand, boss. But it aches like all blazes. When I should get the fellas to chase them on these... You'd never catch them. Not on the horses they're riding. Then you mind telling me what's going on here? Yeah, I'll have to. Men, stop your work. Go back to your wagons. Do nothing more until you get further orders. But, boss, we got a schedule to keep to. We ain't got an hour to waste. How long do we have to lay off? A week, maybe longer. Huh? You're crazy. No, Buck, not crazy. I just happen to believe that a life is more important than any schedule. Hmm. I don't get you. Tex has been taken prisoner. Unless we stop work, he dies. The curtain falls on the first act of our Lone Ranger story. Before the next exciting scenes, please permit us to pause for just a few moments. to continue our story. It was several hours later that the Lone Ranger and his faithful Indian companion made their way to the top of the cliff of which they had been hailed earlier in the day and drew their great stallions to a halt. Oh, 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 oh boy. Oh, oh. Well, this is it, Tonto. See? Look below there. Uh, me, me see. See those pines? That's where we stopped when that fellow called to us. That's right. So this must be the ledge where he was hidden. Let's take a look around. Uh, See what you can find in that direction. Now look over here. Tonto, do it. Oh, wait. Tonto, come here. You find trail? I found something. Most of this ground is hard packed. But look at this. What do you think of it? Oh, here, feller, kneel. Yes? There, mark him make a toe. He got on one knee to look over the edge here. Oh. And his horse must have been over there, out of sight from below. Now, let's see. There's sign. You've got keen eyes, Tonto. Where? This side, rock. And now I see it. And look here. And now it's plain. Tonto, this is where he mounted again. The trail leads there to the south. That right. Call, Scout. Here, Scout. Here, Silver. We follow trail? Yes. Halstead thought we had something to do with Tex Morgan's capture, Kimosabi. Uh-huh. Yep. <clears throat> so we've got to find Tex. Not only to make it possible for the work to go on, but to clear ourselves. Uh-huh. And ride slowly and lead the way. We can make better time once we're away from the cliff. Get him up, Scout. Come on, old fellow.
Days of idleness followed for the telegraph crew. Their wagons, in which the men made their quarters in groups of fours, were drawn up into a great circle not far from the mining town of South Pass. And it was here that Halstead conferred with a group of his lieutenants. Buck, what have you done? Everything I could think of. Me and Ed and Frank there done more riding in the past three days than we'd ordinary do in a month. We rode and searched out the country all the way from the Sweetwater to the Black River. I ain't found nothing. Boss, I hate like sin to say it, but... Uh, but what? I got a notion Texas is dead. I won't believe it. Well, I don't want to. This country's too wild. You couldn't have searched all of it. I don't claim we did. It'd take a year for that. You saw nothing of that masked man or the Indian? Nothing. I see. Well, Clay, what about you? I ain't had no more luck than Buck has. You picked up nothing? Boss, I've just about lived in South Pass. I've hung around every cafe. I've talked to everybody that weren't either deep or dumb. Nobody's got any notion what happened to Tex, and nobody's got the least idea who could gain by holding back the telegraph. I'm sorry. I didn't hope for Buck to find anything, but I did hope there'd be gossip in town to give us a clue to what's behind this. If there is, then I missed it complete. I got a little good news for you, boss. Yes? About the Mormons. The Mormons are building east from Salt Lake City to Fort Bridger, you know. Well? That's tough country they got to work in. They ain't making as good a time as they figured do. I know. I heard that yesterday. Well, that means we can still beat them to Fort Bridger if we only get started again. You're suggesting that I give orders to go on with the work? Yeah. When that message told us Tex would die if we did? Tex was as much my friend as yours. I've told you what I think. It's my opinion. Nothing we can do now can either help nor hurt him. What do the rest of you think? Well, it doesn't matter. It's my responsibility. I'll have to make the decision. What's it to be, boss? When they hear of this back east, men, they won't like it. But we don't string a mile of wire till we know what's happened. In the meantime, at South Pass, Mullins was as impatient as Halstead, although for another reason. I've been waiting for you. I couldn't make it no sooner, Mullins. I hurried fast as I could. House for drink. Not now. But I need We to... keep clear heads until we're finished here. Now, what's going on? What are they doing at Western Union camp? <laughs> Still setting on the hands. And Morgan? Safe as a bug in a rug. Only time he ain't tied up is when Red lets him loose teeth. And loose or tied, Red's got an eye on him all the time. You can forget about him. Why hasn't Red come here? Now, that wouldn't be sensible, would it? When somebody might recognize him as the fellow that rode off with Tex... Better for him to stay out of sight. Yeah, I suppose it is. Have much trouble with Morgan when you took him prisoner? <laughs> None at all. Red's scheme works slick as grease. He let him past where I was hiding. Let me get the drop on that hombre, and there wasn't nothing more to it. He just had to give up. If he hadn't, it had been his finish, and he was smart enough to know it. Good. Now, if the weather would only turn cold enough to freeze the streams and stop the mining, we huh? could... Turn cold, but it's turning right now, didn't you know it? What's that? Sure. Just stick your nose outside if you don't believe me. I'll bet there's been a drop of ten degrees in just the past hour. And it's time. Now, wait, We Mullins. can't. Get up, you're riding. Without even just one drink to warm my inside? Without one single drink. Oh. Now, Jake, listen to me. Yeah? I want Red back in town before midnight. Bring him to my cabin. But what's the hurry? I wait. You there! 
You trying to hear what we're saying? Me no, Happy. Clear out. Uh, he couldn't have heard you. There's no telling what a redskin can hear. Well, what you start to say? Jake, we strike for the gold before morning. After midnight, and with the exception of the few who stood guard, the men at the construction camp were sound asleep. Suddenly a cry rang out through the still night air. Wake up! There's that masked fellow! Wake up! Wake up! From every wagon, the men tumbled to the ground and ran toward the man who had given the alarm. There he is! Really! Bring down! Come on! He's getting away! What is this? What's the trouble? Horse, look up the trail towards town. What the, the mask friend? Yes, so. And getting away again. He could tell us what happened to Tex. Horse, ain't we going after him this time, neither? We are. Get your horses and don't stop for saddles. Get after that fellow. <laughs> While it was still an hour before dawn, a heavy wagon of the kind employed to freight supplies waited behind the ore smelter at South Pass. The door of the strong room stood open. On the ground to one side lay the bound and gagged figures of several men. Other men, working swiftly and silently, moved between the wagon and the mill, carrying heavy burdens. How much more? Red's bringing the last. There. Gosh, them bars are heavy. <laughs> Don't know if the gold's worth all the work it takes to get it. My back's near busted. Ah, don't be a fool. Red, hurry up with that. I'm coming. Stand aside, Jake. There you are. Yeah, that's all of it, Mullins. Yeah, that was fast work. It didn't take 20 minutes. How much gold do you figure we got? 100,000 at the very least. More than likely twice that much. I'd let you go on. Wait. Well? These guards here, what about them? Leave them as they are. Red, you'll drive. Which way? West. Follow the regular trail. I've got horses waiting for us beyond town. And the gold? We'll hide. I know a place... We can come back for it when the search is dead down. Come on, then. Let... Yeah. A fight. Of all the fool luck. They'll rouse the whole town. Now I quick up into the wagon. Right. What do we do? Take the reins, Red. Get going. Get up. Get along there, you critters. I drive slowly now. Don't act as though we're in a hurry. If we don't arouse suspicions, we'll be all right. Better keep your guns handy just the same. Get up. Get up. There they are. Somebody's being chased. Don't mind them. Keep your eyes on the horses. Look at that white horse in the lead. Hey, ain't that a dandy? It's Mullins, that hombre atop it is masked. The other looks like a redskin. Here they come. See if they don't just ride past. That redskin, I've seen him somewhere. Hold up there. Uh, what the... Let go of them reins. Get back. We got the horses. Oh, you tell I'll pull my hand. Go for those guns again and I'll shoot the kill. Yeah, blast you, you hipster. Stranger, listen. Let us go and we'll make it worth your while. You don't understand. You're it. staying here. Here come other fellas. Don't try to get away. We've chased you through all the way here. You Maybe... didn't chase us. We led you. You were... Look in this wagon. These fellows have just robbed the mill. They've got $100,000 in gold oh, here. Oh, 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 oh. Look at it. Catch up back here. Oh, I don't understand. This gold here. You say you want to Listen to me. Then judge for yourself. Talk. These are the men who kidnapped Tex. That's a lie. Shut up. These men kidnapped Tex. But Tonto and I found where they'd taken him. You mean... We've known since the day we delivered that message to you where he was. We left him there on purpose. As long as they didn't attempt to harm him, he was safe. We left him there, 
Until we could discover why these fellows wanted the telegraph delayed. Don't believe him, Mr. Lyon. man's talking. You can still get to Fort Bridger in time, Halstead. No harm's been done. And these fellows have put their heads into a noose. Stranger, that's a smooth story. But there's just one thing wrong with it. Yes? If you've been telling the truth, then why isn't Tex here? He will... I am here. And, course, the masked man's told you the truth from start to finish. Tex! Boys, this means we get back to work. We're going to stretch that telegraph to Fort Bridger in nothing flat. Two weeks later. Here's the message, sir. I've written it out. Thank you. Boss, read it out loud to us, won't you? Men... This is a moment when all of us deserve to be proud. I'll read you what's written here. To Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States. In the temporary absence of the governor of the state, I am requested to send you the first message which will be transmitted over the wires of the telegraph line which connects the Pacific with the Atlantic states. The people of California desire to congratulate you upon the completion of the great work. They believe that it will be the means of strengthening the attachment which binds both the East and the West to the Union. And they desire in this, the first message across the continent, to express their loyalty to the Union, and their determination to stand by its government on this, its day of trial. They regard that government with affection and will adhere to it under all fortunes. Signed, Stephen J. Field, Chief Justice of California. Proud? Boss, I'm fit to bust! just heard is a copyrighted feature of the Lone Ranger Incorporated. The Lone Ranger, the episode called Telegraph Lines Cross the Nation from December 15, 1939. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey and our audio engineers are Timothy Olmsted and Jake Cherry. I've always had a soft spot for the actor Howard Duff. You may remember him in a character role as Dustin Hoffman's lawyer in Kramer vs. Kramer. And one of my fondest childhood TV memories is of the situation comedy series he did with his then-wife, the actor and the pioneer woman film director, Ida Lupino. It was called Mr. Adams and Eve. Mr. Duff had a fine career on TV, radio, and in the movies, and his greatest radio success came 
as Dashiell Hammett's famous detective, Sam Spade. Humphrey Bogart had put his stamp on that role in the 1941 movie The Maltese Falcon, and Howard Duff pays a nice tribute to Bogey in the way he calls people sweetheart. There's a musical joke in the show's theme about that, too. See if you can spot it. This episode features a Sam Spade secretary named Bernadine, who's even ditzier than her predecessor, Effie. From Independence Day 1948, CBS, and, as you'll hear, Wild Root Cream Oil, here's the Rushlight Diamond Caper from The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Detective Agency. Me, sweetheart. Oh, Sam, I got it. Got what, my pet? A bank book, Sam. Well, you must advertise in the lost and found right away, Effie, and find the owner. There might be sickness in the family. Oh, but it's your bank book, Sam. What? Uh Uh-huh, it has your name on it. Samuel Spade, account number four. It's a forgery. Somebody's trying to pin something on me. Lock it up and don't touch it until I get there. Oh, all right. Did you make a lot of money on this one, too? Got the check right in my pocket, 500 bucks. Oh, Sam, we're making more money than a movie star. Well, almost. And all honestly, too. (laughs) 600 last week and 500 this week. Yeah, how about that? And life gives a three-page spread to I Spy Molten. But uh, we mustn't let it turn our heads, Effie. No. We gotta stay in there pitching. I'll be right down to pitch my report on the Adam Fig Caper. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. You've heard the saying, you never know until you try. Well, you'll never know how handsome your hair can look until you try Wild Root Cream Oil. See for yourself how neatly and naturally Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair. Note how effectively it relieves annoying dryness and removes loose, ugly dandruff. You can get Wild Root Cream Oil hair tonic in either the big economy-sized bottle or the handy tube. Or you can ask your barber to use it on your hair. But by all means, try it. Don't delay. Get it today. Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in The Adventures of Sam Spade. going to love it. Well, we got to watch these expenses, Effie. You know, there's always something. Yes, but this will be saving. It saves confusion and saves fretting. Mm-hmm. Now, this gadget here, what is it? It's a mineral robot. <laughs> a what about? It's for busy men like yourself, Sam, so you don't have to burden your mind with petty details. You see, it has this dial on it, yeah. right here. And you drop these little cards in this slot. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about that. That's for me to take care of. Oh, good. Then, when you come into the office, and supposing you have an appointment with Mr. Jones at 2 o'clock, and you forgot about it, you just dial 2 o'clock, and the little card pops out. And it says, Mr. Jones on it. How do I remember to dial 2 o'clock? Oh, 
Well, maybe it's in the instruction book. But anyway, now go ahead, Sam, please. The card's right in there. Now, dial two o'clock. Go on, Sam. Uh, let's see. Uh... Just like a telephone, Sam. Uh-huh. Now what do I do? Well, give it time, Sam. It's thinking. Must have forgotten. Uh, Jones. Mr. Jones. Ooh. Effie, do you think it's dead? Oh, Sam, I don't understand it. It was working perfectly. Well, I'll take it straight back first thing in the morning. You'll have to. It'll never find the way itself. You got your book, sweetheart? Yes, Sam, I... <laughs> I don't understand. It was working perfectly. Well, that's all right, honey. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Date, October 5, 1947, to Hillary Exxon Esquire from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Oh, oh honey, it's only a memo robot. <laughs> Subject, the Adam Fig Caper. Dear Mr. Exxon, October 2nd in San Francisco was one of those days that you see blown off the calendar by a gust of wind in the movies to denote the time is passing. It was a day for scraping off the minutes with a fingernail file and wondering whether the display ad I'd paid for in the classified section of the phone book wasn't just a waste of money. It certainly wasn't the day I'd expect a leprechaun to walk into my office. He uh, said his name was Adam Fig. He said he was the butler at Exxon Manor in Los Nidos. The limousine, Mr. Spade, is waiting to take you away. We mustn't keep them waiting, must we? Of course we mustn't. Uh... Who mustn't we? Why, Mr. Hillary, of course, sir. Oh, Mr. Hillary. And old Mr. Exxon. Mm. The old gentleman is very ill. Uh, Dr. Feige's office is down the hall. Turn to your right, second door. Well, I assure you, sir, that Mr. Exxon has the best of medical care. Your duty will be simple, to prevent his death. Uh, do I donate blood or just frighten away the evil spirits? Oh, it isn't quite that, sir. Someone is trying to kill Mr. Exxon. He's a very sick man, and I'm sure he'd prefer dying from natural causes. Uh-huh. I get $25 a day in expenses. Well, here is an ample amount in advance. But you should know, sir, that the old man is a nasty, cantankerous, villainous, crooked, intimidating... $500? Please, Fig, you're talking about the man I love. <laughs> Los Nidos was at least an overnight caper, so on my way out, my lovely and charming secretary, Miss Perrine, handed me a brown paper bag which contained A, one pair of socks, darned, B, one shirt, ironed, and C, the apple which she always polishes for me the night before. We arrived at your large southern-style mansion two hours later. Hey! Where the devil have you been? To the city, sir. I can't find the keys to the liquor closet. Where are all the maids? What happened to that cook we hired yesterday? Who is this man, and why is he wearing that necktie? This is Mr. Spade, sir, the detective. Oh? Oh, uh, I'm Hillary Exxon. Come in, come in, please. Go on upstairs, Fig. See what that girl is doing to my father. I don't believe she's in this at all. Very good, sir. In here, Mr. Spade. Pardon the condition of the house. The old man has been firing the servants again. Your father, you mean? Yes, yes. Every time he gets shot at, he fires all the servants. He gets shot at pretty often? About once a year, in the fall. Uh-huh. You always hire a detective? Oh, no. Oh, dear. I'm not keeping you up, am I? No, no. Excuse me, please. It's, it's much worse this time. I can't get any sleep. Guns going off in the middle of the night. The whole household disturbed. When and where was he last shot at? Yesterday morning at about half past one. I dug the bullet out of the woodwork myself, a thirty-eight caliber, embedded in the door frame that leads to Miss Kaywood's room. 
Oh, uh, that, uh, that's his nurse. Was she with him at the time? No. No, Dad sleeps like a baby, full of sedatives. She sees to that. Shot come from outside? Yes, yes, but we found nobody on the grounds. No traces of anybody. I don't know whether Dad knows who shot at him or not. He's such a closed-mouthed old devil. You don't uh, care very much for your father, do you? To be frank, Mr. Spade, if hating weren't such an effort, I would despise him. He is without a doubt... Well, listen, listen. There, there, that's just a sample. Well, come on, come on, let's see what's eating him now. I'm quitting, Mr. Rexall. I can't stand another minute yelling, screaming, throwing things at him. You must have done something to set him off. But I didn't, I tell you, oh. I didn't. This is Mr. Spade, Miss Kaywood. Oh, a, a detective. Oh. Will it make you happier to know that I'm a private detective, uh, Miss Kaywood? Well, Mr. Spade, I only hope you can prevent a murder. If there's any way at all that I can help, I... Thanks, I'll uh, see you downstairs after I've talked to the old man. You'd better go in alone, Spade. Oh, Miss Kaywood, <clears throat> do you have a throat spray downstairs? I seem to be congested. Oh, go away. Go away! Go away! Oh, <laughs> well... Wasting ammunition. Who are you? If you're a total stranger, come on in. Well, don't be afraid, son. Come on over where I can look at you. Uh, it's uh, hard to keep my eyes open. Oh, oh, I mustn't do that. I mustn't do that. Oh, so you're the detective, eh? That's right, Pop. If you want to take a little nap or something, I'll come back later. Uh, oh, 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 what did I say just now? Come back later? No, 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 no. There's no reason for you to come back later. I'll say everything I have to say right now. The shot woke me. I didn't see anything. I don't know anything. I've got a million enemies. I can't remember the names of any of them. Why don't you try to remember? I could have them checked. You're wasting your time, Sonny. In my day, I've wiped out a hundred men, and I'll outlive anybody who's gunning for me now. You must be proud of your past, huh? Proud? <laughs> Sonny... A past like mine is the finest thing an old man can have. I've swindled my partners and betrayed my friends. I've turned state's evidence just <coughs> to see my associate get sent up for 20 years. And they say my wife died under peculiar circumstances and I got rich off her insurance. Now I'm done talking. <coughs> uh, oh, do me a favor, son, please. I've got to get a half hour, 20 minutes sleep alone. You'll keep them out, everybody. Please, will you? Please. Sure, sure, Pop. Uh, go ahead, go on, sleep. Oh, thank you, thank you. That's it. He closed his eyes, rolled over, and fell into a heavy sleep. I stood there a moment, looking down at the frail, wasted old body. Then I cased the room. In digging the bullet out of the door, Hillary had done a good job of ruining any chance there might have been of proving the direction it had come from. I strolled out on the balcony. It was a pretty night. I lit a cigarette and took it in. Then I heard the door open and close softly behind me. Nurse Kaywood was at your father's bedside. She was filling a hypodermic from a small vial of bluish liquid. He didn't awaken when she jabbed it into his arm. Then she saw me standing in the doorway. She hastily dropped the medicine vial into her uniform pocket and came around the bed to meet me. Oh, oh Mr. Spade, oh, thank heaven, why... Why, when I saw you standing there in the half-night, I thought you might be... Thought the... I was who? Why, uh, the man who fired the shot. It was a man? I, well, I don't know. I, I didn't see it happened. I just assumed oh, the man... You shouldn't have done it. 
I warned you, sir. Eleanor. Oh, uh, we're, dis- we're disturbing him. Let's talk outside. Okay. Good to breathe something besides sick room air. I thought you got used to things like that in your profession. Why are you so unfriendly, Mr. Spade? Nurses are human, aren't detectives? Try me, sweetheart. Oh, I know what you're thinking of me. But after a week in this horrible house, that that poor old man, he's frightened. He's really frightened. What of? Why, why the shots. 38 caliber or hypodermic? Surely you don't think that I... He's supposed to be under sedatives, a... The doctor's orders. Sorry, sweetheart. It's my job to suspect everybody. Oh. Oh, can't you forget your job, even for a moment? Sure. Sure. If you don't mind the fact that I know you're a liar, that I'd make book you didn't come here primarily as a nurse, and what's worse, your act's not even convincing. Oh. Is it that bad, Sam? Yeah. Almost bad enough to be good. Come here. Oh, oh I hate you. It was a very satisfactory love scene for both of us. For reasons of her own, Barbara wanted to keep me out of that sick room for a while, and she did. For reasons of my own, I wanted to get that medicine vial out of her uniform pocket, and I did. Then, as suddenly as we had fallen into love, we fell out again. After she'd gone to her room, I went back to my sentry duty around the house. Under a light on the front veranda, I examined the bottle from which Barbara had taken the injection for your father. It was labeled sodium thanatol and had been dispensed by a firm called Ibis Chemicals Limited in Cairo, Egypt. A scream filled the house, high and frenzied. I started running toward Barbara Kaywood's room. I slammed the terrace door open and found the light switch. Barbara was sitting upright in the center of a bed. Her face jerked up so abruptly that it seemed her neck had snapped. She clutched both hands to her chest and fell face down among the bedclothes, staining them with her blood. I don't know whether I went through, over, or around the screen that stood between her room and the old man's. I circled Exxon's bed. He lay on the floor on his side facing the window. I went outside. A thirty-eight automatic lay on the ground a few yards away from the building. I put that into my pocket and listened. No shadows moving. Nothing. Then he was on me before I could be sure he wasn't a medium-sized tree. Break your back. Be the light. The warm stuff on my cheek might have been the thing's blood or mine. It gathered me up and bent me back and tore at my throat. (laughs) Then I remembered that hands are stronger than fingers. I started with his thumbs. Then his huge body began to twitch. He was holding his fingers and sobbing like a baby. I pulled him up to his feet, poked him in the back with the flat of my hand. I followed him through an opening in the hedges and down a long, pitch-dark lane toward the lights of a squat brick house set on the top of a slight rise. As we approached it, a door opened and light streamed out onto the porch. The tall man framed in the doorway was the last person in the world I expected to see. Ah, Marcus, you brought him. Oh, Master, very delightful service, but have much pain in me. Always complaining, Marcus. Welcome, Mr. Spade. Come in, my dear fellow. Come in. I've been expecting you. 
the lost family fortune by 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 blackmailing uh, 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 me. <laughs> and if you don't, uh, Romet Exxon could have you booked for forgery, uh, blackmail, definition of character. Oh, my, uh, my, my dear fellow, please, this is this, uh, this is most painful. But if I had but the the original letter, I could destroy it and go back to the felt. Oh, the felt. What happened to him? Uh, that pig, that 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 stinker stole it. He burgled my home. Are you uh, taking pot shots at old Exxon? Well, don't be a fool, man. I want Exxon to stay alive. I must find out some part of his life which will have an exchange value that will cancel out what he has on me. Uh, by the way, old thing, uh, you met Miss Kaywood. Mm-hmm. At the present moment, she's milking me for $150 a day. Oh? She's supposed to go to the old man, by whatever means necessary, into talking about his past. And that information she is to bring to me. Well, that ought to be easy. Exxon brags about his past. Now, so far, I've learned that Hillary Exxon stole two heifers of the livestock show in Abilene in 1906. <laughs> I feel for you, Captain. That wouldn't get much on the uh, current market, would it? My dear fellow, I have a, a proposition to make to you. Should you ferret out anything that would be of value to me, I'll reward you handsomely. Well, maybe something can be arranged, Captain. Good, excellent. May I have your word on that? Well, there isn't much time, Captain. I'd uh, better trot on back. I'll show you to the door, sir. And let me warn you, Mr. Spade, for your own good, should you ever hear the thrum of Ivor's wings, run, flee. I assured him that I would heed his warning, bade him good night, and started back down the lane in the direction of Action Manor. Business was going on as usual. There were no shots this time, only the scream. When I got to Barbara's room, you and Adam were standing at a bedside trying to quiet it down. Well, Mr. Spade, is this the way you guard the house against intruders? Where have you been? Ask Adam. What does he mean by that thing? I'm sure I don't know, sir. I've not left the house. What happened here? Oh, she woke up screaming. She said someone had come into the room and torn off her bandages. A nightmare, of course. Please, I want to talk to Mr. Spade alone. Oh, please, please go. Adam, you go, too. Please, Hillary, you go, too. Good. Some questions I want to ask you, sweetheart, alone. Herbert, look here, Spade, look here. She just had a terrific shock. She shouldn't be uh, questioned. The the code of detective transcends that of the medical, Mr. Hillary. Perhaps he should have a few minutes alone with Miss Kaywood. Oh, very well, very well. I I suppose you know best. Uh, Remember what the doctor said, Miss Barbara. Not too much exertion. What happened, Barbara? Well, it, it could have been a dream. Somebody was standing over me in the darkness and peering down at me. And then he started to rip off my bandages and I screamed. And when Fig came into the room and and he turned on the lights, he was gone. It it could have been a dream, Sam, and I I could have been clawing at the bandages myself in in my sleep. But you weren't. It wasn't a dream. I've been talking to Captain Sherry. And and then I thought... Oh, oh, well, how much do you know? That you've been feeding the old man truth, sir, and beginning to talk in his sleep. Oh. How much talking has he done? Well, plenty... How much have you told Sherry? Well, just as little as possible. Why? Because, Sam, if, if we can keep that old man alive and out of jail long enough to sell what we know to Sherry for what it's really worth, we'd be fools not to do it. What makes you so sure you'll stay alive long enough to collect, sweetheart? Well, because you're going to help me, aren't you, Sam? <laughs> So I helped her, but not for the reason she thought. I made a lot of noise leaving her room and going to mine. Going back, I didn't wear any shoes. I slipped into a clothes press in her room so quietly that even she didn't hear me. 
I left the door slightly ajar and waited. Time passed, and I was stiff from standing still. It happened at about 3 a.m. The feverish glare of his eyes told me that the threat of the gun in my hands meant nothing to him. I jumped to his side, twisted the knife away from him, picked him up in my arms, and carried him, kicking, clawing, and swearing, back to his bed. He lay there, breathing hard. Then he smiled. You're a smart one, Sonny. You had me figured out the first time you came in here. Didn't you? Not quite, Mr. Exxon. The gun under your window was the clincher. <laughs> that gun? Sure. I had it under my pillow all the time. I got tired of shooting into door frames. Look, you're dying, Mr. Exxon. There's no use trying to make up stories now. <laughs> you're right, Sonny. I knew that nurse would sit up in bed after I fired tonight. And then I let her have it right through the screen. Why? You know why well enough. She was doping me up and sneaking in here at night, listening to what I was babbling about. Maybe you weren't saying anything important, Mr. Exxon. I might have, Sonny. I might have. Fourteen years ago, I killed my wife. I wanted to carry the secret to my grave. <laughs> You nearly made it at that. Uh, Spade! What happened? Is he dead? He's dead. Did he say anything, sir? Did he confess anything? You must tell me if he said anything. I didn't hear him say a word. Oh, well. Hmm. Yeah, Mr. Spade. Charged with a certain texture and a significant quality. There's a certain smell, yes. Oh, and omen. You can inhale it, sir. Journey thou to Nairobi on the felt. Tarry seven days, and you will collect the fabulous golden skull of Wizami, king of the pajamas. Aha! Marcus! Yes, master. Unhook the hooker. Pack the marmalade. We are off to the felt. Just then, a flock of birds broke across the horizon, screaming. There must have been thousands of them, but not Ibis, Mr. Exxon. Vultures. I suppose if you're going to pay any attention to omens, it's a good thing to know your birds. Period. End of report. Right now, I have something to say to every man who doesn't use a hair tonic. To every man who says, I don't believe in it or I don't need it. That all depends on what you mean when you say hair tonic. If you mean the old-fashioned greasy kind that leaves your hair smelling like a perfume factory, you're absolutely right. But remember, Wild Root Cream Oil hair tonic is nothing like that. Wild Root Cream Oil is an entirely new kind of hair grooming preparation. There's not a drop of alcohol in Wild Root Cream Oil, and it contains soothing lanolin that's like the oil of your skin. Most important, Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair the right way, neatly and naturally, never leaves your hair sticky or greasy. Get the big economy-sized bottle. And the handy new tube that's economical, easy to pack when you travel, and grand for the bathroom cabinet. Don't delay. Get it today. Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. 
Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Well, Effie, we... Uh, but... Sam, the memo robot worked after all. I told you it would. Yeah, it just takes a little time, sweetheart. Oh, read the card, Sam. Now, you see? You'd know you were supposed to see Mr. Jones at 2 o'clock. Isn't it wonderful? Well, this card doesn't even mention Jones. Huh? What does it say, Sam? Well, it says, uh, Journey thou to Friskin's Drugstore, wager $5 on Ira W. in the third at Belmont Park. Oh, Sam, it's psychic. Tarry but a moment. Yes? Thou wilt lose five bucks. Oh, good night, Sam. Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. The Adventures of Sam Spade are written for radio by Bob Tallman and Gil Dowd with musical direction by Lud Gluskin. This is Dick Joy reminding you that next Sunday, author Dashiell Hammett and producer William Spear join forces for another adventure with Sam Spade brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Smart girls use Wild Root Cream Oil, too, for quick, good grooming and to relieve dryness between permanents. Mothers say it's grand for training children's hair. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Okay, so it's not a big musical joke, but I love that the theme is Good Night, Sweetheart, or Good Night, Sweetheart. The Rushlight Diamond Caper, from The Adventures of Sam Spade, on the 4th of July, 1948. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. We're going to hear from one of the greats right now, Orson Welles, who always said radio was his favorite medium. And Citizen Kane or no Citizen Kane, you can make a good argument that radio was where Maestro Wells did do his best work. Tonight, we have a classic Wells production and performance. Along with his Mercury Theater players, he takes on the role of the most famous detective of all times, Sherlock Holmes. And he does so with a nod to the actor who's credited as the first to create the role of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's private eye, William Gillette. It's safe to say that when the show we're about to hear aired in 1938, most of Wells's listeners would have easily recognized William Gillette's famous name and his Sherlock Holmesian legacy. With musical director Bernard Herrmann, who would go on to write the famous score to Alfred Hitchcock's movie Psycho a couple of decades later, here's Orson Welles as... The Immortal Sherlock Holmes from September 25th, 1938, CBS and the Mercury Theatre on the air. The Mercury Theatre on the air.
Columbia Broadcasting System takes pleasure in bringing you the 12th in its series of weekly broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Tonight, Broadway's and radio's most celebrated theatrical producing company brings to life the best-loved character in detective fiction, the immortal Sherlock Holmes. The play is Orson Welles' own adaptation for radio of William Gillette's enduring melodrama based on the famous stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Before the performance begins, here is the director of the Mercury Theatre, the star and producer of these unique broadcasts, Orson Welles. Good evening. Well, tonight it's back to Baker Street. Back to that unlikely London of the 19th century where high adventure awaits all who would seek it in a handsome cab or under a gas lamp in an Inverness cape. For tonight we pay tribute to the most wonderful member of that most wonderful world, a gentleman who never lived and who will never die. There are only a few of them, these permanent profiles, everlasting silhouettes on the edge of the world. There is first the little hunchback with a slapstick whose hooked nose is shaped like his cap. There is now and always will be the penguin-footed hobo in the derby and the baggy pants and the small boy with a wooden head and the long, rusty knight on horseback and the fat knight who could only procure a charge on foot. There is also the tall gentleman with a hawk's face and the underslung pipe and the fore-and-aft cap. We'd know them anywhere and call them easily by name. Punch and the Charlies... Chaplin and McCarthy, Quixote, Sir John, and Sherlock Holmes. Now, irrelevant as this may seem, we of the Mercury Theatre are very much occupied these days with rehearsals for a revival of a fine old American farce. A lot of you will remember, if only for its lovely title, which is Too Much Johnson. Its author was William Gillette, which reminded us, as it reminds you, of Sherlock Holmes. As everybody knows, that celebrated American inventor of underacting lent his considerable gifts as a playwright to the indestructible legend of the Conan Doyle detective and produced the play which is as much a part of the Holmes literature as any of Sir Arthur's own romances and, as nobody will ever forget, he gave his face to him. For William Gillette was the aquiline and actual embodiment of Holmes himself. It is too little to say that William Gillette resembled Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes looks exactly like William Gillette. Sounds like him too, we're afraid, and hope devoutly that the Mercury Theatre and the radio will take none of the glamour from the beloved fable of Baker Street, from the pipe and the violin and the hideous purple dressing gown, from the needle and the cigar on the window ledge, and the dry, final... Famous lines. Elementary, my dear Watson. Elementary. The mere child's play of deduction. My name is Watson. I am a doctor. It was in the year 1880 that Holmes and I were introduced by a mutual acquaintance... At the time, we were both looking for a lodging that would suit our moderate means. This we found on the second floor of a house at 221B Baker Street. And it was during the years that we occupied these chambers together that Holmes established his unique international reputation 
as a consulting detective. During that time, I was privileged to be his daily companion, and I have done my modest share in giving to the world an account of some of his most famous cases. Most famous of these are the ones of which I have written under the names of the Speckled Band, Sign of Four, Hound of the Baskervilles, and A Study in Scarlet. They represent, however, only a minute fraction of the 643 cases Holmes successfully solved during the years that we shared the lodgings in Baker Street. Other cases I hope one day to give to the world include the Tarleton murders, the sudden death of Cardinal Tosca, the adventure of Ricoletti of the club foot and his abominable wife, the case of Mrs. Ferrantosh, the circus bell, and the case of the royal family of Scandinavia. Each illustrate in their own way the remarkable genius of my friend Sherlock Holmes. Since my marriage three years ago, Holmes has continued to occupy the Baker Street lodgings by himself. And here almost every afternoon when my work in the office is finished, I am in the habit of calling on him. The sitting room as you go in is exactly as it has been for the past 13 years. The worn bearskin rug, the huge sofa covered with faded chintz, the mantelpiece cluttered with miscellaneous objects, unanswered letters and piles of loose tobacco. On one side of the fireplace in a deep armchair, his pipe curling forth slow wreaths of acrid tobacco, draped in his hideous purple dressing gown, sits Sherlock Holmes with his violin under his chin. Watson, my dear fellow. How are you, Holmes? I'm delighted to see you. Perfectly delighted. Upon my word, I am. But uh, I'm sorry to observe that your wife has left you. <laughs> she has gone on a little visit. But how did you know? How did I? Well, I like that. How do I know anything? How do I know you've been getting yourself very wet lately, that you're an extremely careless servant girl, that you've moved your dressing table to the other side of the room? Holmes, if you had lived a few centuries ago, they'd have burned you alive. Hmm. Such a contrigation would have saved me a great deal of trouble and expense. Tell me, now, how did you know all that? Hmm. Too simple to talk about. Scratches and clumsy cuts, my dear fellow, on the inner side of your shoe there, just where the firelight strikes it. Scratches, cuts. Somebody scraped away crusted mud and did it badly, badly. Scraped the shoe along with it. There's your wet foot, my dear Watson, and your careless servant girl all on one shoe. Face badly shaved on the right side, always used to be on the left. Light must come from the other side. Couldn't very well move your window, must move to the dressing table. <laughs> of course. But how the deuce did you know my wife was away? Well, where the deuce is your second waistcoat button, Watson? And what the deuce is yesterday's buttoneer doing in today's lapel? And why the deuce do you wear the expression of a... <laughs> oh, marvelous. Elementary, my dear fellow, elementary. The child's play of deduction. I'm only doing it for your amusement before we pass on to more serious matters. Oh, what is it now, Holmes? Watson, my dear fellow... The enthusiasm which has prompted you to chronicle, and if you will excuse my saying so, somewhat to embellish my little uh, adventures, you occasionally seen fit to introduce a certain element of romance which struck me as being uh, just a trifle out of place. Something like working an elopement into the fifth proposition of Euclid. I uh, merely refer to this in case you should see fit at some future time to uh, chronicle the case on which I am about to embark. The strange case of Professor Robert Moriarty. Moriarty? I don't remember ever having heard of the fellow. No, Watson, you haven't. It is precisely this quality of invisibility that makes of Professor Moriarty the Napoleon of crime. Sitting motionless like an ugly, venomous spider in the center of his web. But that web having a thousand radiations and the spider knowing every quiver of every one of them. And within 48 hours, I'll have the lines drawn so tightly around him that he can't move. 
I'll arrest him and his entire gang. By Holmes, this is a very dangerous My thing. dear fellow, it's perfectly delightful. My whole life is spent in a series of frantic endeavors to escape from the dreary commonplaces of existence. For a brief period, I escape. You should congratulate me. The day before yesterday, I received in this room the visit of a certain foreign nobleman who has recently inherited a very considerable title and who is about to be married. Seems that this titled gentleman was so indiscreet as to fall in love with a young English lady by the name of Faulkner, uh, socially his inferior, and to make her a promise of marriage. Uh, later, at his family's insistence, the thing was broken off, and the young lady died shortly after of a broken heart, leaving behind a sister. Also, considerable evidence in the form of letters, photographs, and jewelry with inscriptions. These the sister kept. These, together with the sister, are now being held in a house in St. John's Wood by a pair of blackmailers who go by the name of Chetwood. So far as you see, my dear Watson, a fairly ordinary case of blackmail hardly worth my attention. Last night, upon my inspection, a certain element revealed itself which renders the case far more important than I had expected. And that element was... Professor Moriarty. Come in. Big pardon, Mr. Holmes. Mm, yes, Billy, what is it? Gentleman to see you by the name of Foreman. Show him in, Billy. Show him in. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Come in, Mr. Foreman. Mm, good evening, Foreman. Good evening, Mr. Holmes. Uh, Watson, this is Inspector Foreman. Since the day before yesterday, he occupies the position of butler under the name of Judson in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Chetwood, uh, blackmailers of St. John's Wood. Well, Foreman, any news? Yes, sir. This morning, a little after nine, Chetwood and his wife drove away in a four-wheeler. They returned about eleven. Bassick was with them. You know him, sir? Mm, yes. When I last had the occasion to meet Mr. Bassick, he got two years for safe-cracking. Go on, Foreman. Well, they took this man Bassick into the library. I got a look at him from the outside. And there he was opening up the safe where they'd been keeping the letters. Go on. In the end, when they got the safe open, it was empty. Hmm. The letters were gone. It seems like the Faulkner girl got them back somehow. That got them pretty excited. Bassick went out to send a telegram. Have you got a copy of it? Yes, yes. Here it is, sir. It's in code. Hmm. Moriarty. I thought so, Watson. This case is taking a most promising turn. Foreman, you return at once to the house at St. John's Wood. Within ten minutes, I shall be there myself. If I remember correctly, the kitchen is immediately below the drawing room. Yes. When I knock over a chair in the drawing room, you'll overturn a lamp in the kitchen, scatter smoke balls, and give an alarm of fire. All other instructions remain unchanged. Very good, sir. Hurry, Foreman. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Well, my dear Watson, it begins to look like a most interesting evening. <laughs> My name is Sherlock Holmes. Whom, whom did you wish to see, Mr. Holmes? Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Chetwood. I had myself announced by the butler on my the way butler? up. Butler? I didn't. Oh, very well. Oh, here he is. Yes, Judson. Miss Faulkner begs Mr. Holmes to excuse her. 
She is not well enough to see anyone this evening. Uh, will you please hand this card to Miss Faulkner and say that I... I beg your pardon, Mr. Holmes, but it's quite useless, really. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear it. Yes, Miss Faulkner is, I regret to say, quite an invalid. She is unable to see anyone. Her health is so poor. Uh, has it ever occurred to you, Mr. Chetwood, that she might be confined to the house too much? How does that concern you? It uh, doesn't. I simply make the suggestion. Might like to think it over. What's your butler's name? Judson, sir. Uh, very well, Judson. Go on, take my card up. Very good, sir. Well, this is really too good. Why, of course, he can take up your card or your note or whatever it is if you wish it so much. I was only trying to save you the trouble. Yeah, thanks. It's hardly any trouble at all to send up a card. You know, Mr. Holmes, you interest me very much. Oh, really? Upon my word, yes. We've all heard of your wonderful methods, the astonishing manner in which you gain information from the most trifling details. Now, I dare say, in this brief moment or two, you've discovered any number of things about me. Uh, nothing of consequence, Mr. Chetwood. I hardly more than asked myself why you were so distressed to see me at this particular moment and what there can possibly be about the safe in the lower part of that desk to cause you such painful anxiety. Yes, very good. Very good indeed. If those things were only true now, I'd be wonderfully impressed. It would be absolutely... Excuse me, sir. Uh, Judson. A message for you, Mr. Chetwood. You'll excuse me, I trust. It's from uh, Miss Faulkner. Well, really, she begs to be allowed to see you, Mr. Holmes. She absolutely implores it. Well, I suppose I shall have to give way. Judson, ask Miss Faulkner to come down to the drawing room. Say that Mr. Holmes is waiting to see her. Very good, sir. It's quite remarkable upon my soul. May I ask, if it's not an impertinent question, what message you sent up that could so have aroused Miss Faulkner's desire to come down? Uh, merely if that she wasn't down here in five minutes, I'd go up. Oh, that was it. Yes, quite so. And unless I'm greatly mistaken, I hear the young lady on the stairs which case she has a minute and a half to spare. Alice, uh, that is Miss Faulkner. Let me introduce Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Mr. Holmes. Ah, uh, Miss Faulkner. I'm really most charmed to meet you, although it does look as if you'd made me come down in spite of myself, doesn't it? I thank you very much indeed for consenting to see me, Miss Faulkner, but regret to observe that you were put to the trouble of making such a very rapid change of dress. Oh, yes. I did hurry a trifle, I confess. Mr. Holmes is quite living up to his reputation, isn't he, Freddy? Come in. Yes, ma'am. What are you doing here, Judson? I beg pardon, ma'am. I was answering the bell. What bell? The drawing room bell, sir. What do you mean, you blockhead? No one rang the bell. I'm quite sure it was rung, sir. Well, I tell you, it did not ring. Your butler is right, Mr. Chetwood. The bell did ring. How do you know? I rang it. What do you want? I want to send my card to the real Miss Faulkner. The real? I said the real Miss Faulkner. Judson. Yes, sir. Holmes, what right have you to ring for servants and give orders in my house? What right have you to prevent my cards from reaching their destination? And how does it happen that you and this woman are resorting to trickery and deceit to prevent me from seeing Alice Faulkner? Through some trifling oversight, Judson, neither of the cards I handed to him has been delivered. Kindly see that this error does not occur again. My orders, sir. Ah, you have orders. I can't say, sir. You were I... told not to deliver my card. What business is it of yours, I'd like to know? I shall satisfy your curiosity on that point in a very short time, Mr. Chetwood. Yes, and you'll find out in a very short time that it isn't safe to meddle with me. 
It wouldn't be any trouble at all for me to throw you out into the street. Uh, possibly not, but trouble would swiftly follow such an experiment on your part. It's a cursed lucky thing for you. I'm not armed. Yes, well, when Miss Faulkner comes down, you go and arm yourself. Arm myself? I'll call the police. What's more, I'll do it now. Oh, no, you will not do it now. You will remain where you are until the lady I came here to see has entered this room. What makes you so sure of that? Because you will prefer to avoid an investigation of your suspicious conduct, Mr. James Larrabee. That is the name under which you are known to Scotland Yard, I believe, Mr. Chetwood. This lady here is your wife. Steele Judson, you will either deliver that card to Miss Faulkner at once or sleep in the police station tonight. If that is small consequence to me, which you do. Shall I? Shall I go, sir? Go on. Take up the card. It makes no difference to me. Uh, a short time since, Larrabee, you displayed an acute anxiety to leave the room. Pray do not let me detain you or your wife any longer. Take it you prefer to remain while I talk to Miss Faulkner? We do, Mr. Holmes. Ah, glass, Miss Faulkner. This is Mr. Holmes. Yes. You wish to see me? Very much indeed, Miss Faulkner, but I'm sorry to see that you are far from well. Oh, no, I... No? Beg your pardon. What does this mark mean? Oh, nothing. Nothing? No. And the mark here on your neck, plainly showing the clutch of a man's fingers, does that mean nothing also? occurs to me that I should like to have an explanation of this. Possibly you can furnish one, Mr. Larrabee. How should I know? It seems to have occurred in your own house. What if it did? You'd better understand that it isn't healthy for you or anyone else to interfere with my business. Ah, that is your business. We have that much at least. Pray be seated, Miss Faulkner. I don't know who you are, Mr. Holmes, or why you are here. I shall be very glad indeed to explain. My business is this. I've been consulted as to the possibility of obtaining from you certain letters addressed to your sister, which are supposed to be in your possession. I cannot give up my sister's letters, Mr. Holmes. There are other things besides revenge. There is punishment. Uh, believe me, Miss Faulkner. There is nothing more to say. Good night, Mr. Holmes. But my dear Miss Faulkner... Oh, I'm so sorry. How clumsy of me to turn over this chair. Fire! Fire! Oh, help! help oh, what's help, that? Help, what's help, that? Help. What is, what's what going is on in your house here? Fire! The lamp, sir! The lamp! The lamp in the kitchen, sir! It fell off the table and everything down there is blazing, sir! Quick, sir! Come down! We're coming! Uh, don't alarm yourself, Miss Faulkner. There is no fire. No fire? The smoke was all uh, arranged for. Arranged for? What does it mean, Mr. Holmes? It means this, Miss Faulkner. It means that I wanted a package of letters, Miss Faulkner, and that by following your eyes just now, when you thought there was a fire, I discovered that you'd hidden them in the upholstery of this chair. Mm. Yes. Quite elementary, as you see. And now that they're in my possession, there seems to be no reason for me to remain any longer in this house. Good night, Miss Faulkner. Miss Faulkner. Yes? I... I can't take them, Miss Faulkner. These letters belong to you. I find that I cannot keep them. Unless you can possibly change your mind and let me have them of your own free will. I hardly suppose you could. I will therefore return them to you and... Uh... Oh, here's our friend Mr. Larrabee returning from the fire. So, you've got the letters, have you? Now I suppose we're going to see you walk out of the house with them. On the contrary, you're going to see me return them to their rightful owner. Miss Faulkner, here are your letters. Should you ever change your mind and be so generous, so forgiving as to wish to return these letters to the one who wrote them, you have my address. In any event, rest assured there will be no more cruelty, no more persecution in this house. 
Thank you, Mr. Holmes. You are perfectly safe with your property, Miss Faulkner, for I shall so arrange it that your faintest cry of distress will be heard. And if that cry is heard, it will be very unfortunate for those who are responsible. As for you, Mr. Larrabee, and uh, you, madame, I beg you to understand that you continue your persecution of that young lady at your peril. Good night. Miss Faulkner, come here, Miss Faulkner. Now, are you going to give me those letters? No, never. Are you going to give me those letters? Oh. Now then. Be careful, Jim. You shut up. Now then, Miss Faulkner, do you give me those letters or do I break your arm? <laughs> What's that? Someone knocked on the door. No, it was on that side. Did you call, madam? I think someone knocked, Judson. I'll see, madam. I beg pardon, madam, but there's no one at the door. Very well, you may go. He's got us watched. What we want to do is to leave it alone. Let the emperor have it. Do you mean Professor Moriarty? That's who I mean. Once let him get at it, he'll settle it with Holmes pretty quick. Don't you worry a minute. I tell you, Professor Moriarty will get at him before noon tomorrow night. He won't wait long either. And when he strikes, it means death. and baited by an expert. And Manning? Manning has disappeared. Disappeared? Sherlock Holmes again. And now this Latterby job. He's in on that too. And that's where he's made his mistake. Mr. Holmes is playing rather a dangerous game, Basic. Inspector Wilson tried it seven years ago. Wilson is dead. Two years later, Henderson took it up. We haven't heard anything of Henderson lately, eh? Not a thing, sir. Hmm, we'll see about that. Miss Holmes is rather a talented man. He doesn't realize there isn't a street in London that'll be safe for him if I whisper his name to Craig in. I might even make him a little call myself, just for the satisfaction of it. Just for the satisfaction of it. Baker Street, isn't it, his place? It's Baker Street, eh? Baker Street, sir. We could make it safe. We could make it absolutely safe for three streets in every direction. Yes, sir, but this... We could. We've done it over and over again elsewhere. Police decoyed, men in every doorway. Do this tonight in Baker Street. At nine o'clock, call his attendants out on one pretext or another and keep them out. You understand? I'll see this Sherlock Holmes myself. I'll give him a chance for his life. Masick. Yes, sir. Notify the Lascar that I may require the gas chamber at Stepney tomorrow night and have Craig in there at a quarter before ten with his crew. Uh. Tell Larrabee I shall want him to write a letter to Mr. Sherlock Holmes, which I shall dictate. Meet me here at seven. And, Basic, place your men at nine tonight for Sherlock Holmes's house in Baker Street. You still go there yourself, sir? 
I will still go there myself. At this meeting tomorrow night, sir, to get him in the gas chamber. If I fail to kill him in Baker Street, you'll have him in Swandham Lane. Either way, I have him, Bassick. Two strings to our bow. Two strings, eh, Bassick? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That evening, Holmes and I dined together at Scott's in Piccadilly Circus. After dinner, we went to a concert at Queen's Hall. I can still see him on this particular night of the Moriarty case, well knowing that his life was in peril, sitting beside me in the stalls, wrapped in the most perfect happiness, listening to Sarasati play the violin, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music. <laughs> When it was over, he rose, put on his long coat, and started with long steps in the direction of the street. Come, my dear Watson. Let's go on to Baker Street. I have an idea that very soon we shall be receiving a most interesting visit. In front of Queen's Hall, we hailed a hansom, and as we came down Baker Street... We could see that the light was burning on the second floor of 221B. We went up the dark, narrow stairs. Mr. Holmes. The boy Billy was waiting for us. Mr. Holmes. What is it? Mrs. Hudson's compliments, sir, and she wants to know if she can see you. No, where is Mrs. Hudson? Downstairs in the kitchen, sir. Uh, my compliments, and I don't think she can where she is. She'll be very sorry, sir. Our regret will be mutual. It was most terribly important, sir, being as she wants to know what you'll have for breakfast in the morning. Uh, the same. Same as when, sir? Uh, this morning. But you didn't have nothing, sir. You wasn't here. I won't be here tomorrow. Yes, sir. Was that all, sir? Uh, quite so. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Oh, Mr. Holmes, here's a letter for you, sir, on the table. Delivered ten minutes ago. Hmm. Well, read it, Watson. That's a good fellow. When I put on my dressing gown. Yes. Dear sir. Oh, thus addresses me. Why, uh, James Larrabee. And what has James to say this evening? Dear sir. I, uh, hope he won't say that again. <laughs> I have the honor to inform you that Miss Faulkner has changed her mind regarding the letters, etc., which you wish to obtain, and has decided to dispose of them for a monetary consideration. Mm. If you wish to negotiate, will you be at nine o'clock at the guard's monument at the foot of Waterloo Place? You will see a four-wheeler with wooden shutters to the windows. If you have the cab followed or try any other underhand trick, you won't get what you want. Let me know your decisions. Yours truly, James Larrabee. Mm, mine truly. Well, later, perhaps. What does the fellow mean? fellow means to sell me a base imitation for a large sum of money of certain letters that he does not possess. I shall probably buy them from him. Now, see if I have the points. Tonight, 11 o'clock, guard's monument, cab with wooden shutters, no one to come with me, no one to follow. Or I don't get what I want. Quite right. Ah, 
But uh, this cab with the wooden shutters? Oh, merely a little device to keep me from seeing where they're taking me. Billy. Yes, sir. Uh, give this to the man. It was and, a uh, woman, sir. Ah, young or old? Look quite young, sir. You're handsome? Four-wheeler, sir. Mm, uh, seen the driver before? Yes, sir, but I can't think where. Uh, hand this to the lady, apologize for delay, and look at the driver again. Yes, sir. But, my dear Holmes, you didn't say you would go. But I certainly did. But this fellow means mischief. This fellow means the same. I beg pardon, sir. A message come over from the chemist on the corner to say a man has been hit by a bus. Looks like his legs broke. And would Dr. Watson kindly step over and help till the ambulance comes? Oh, you comes. certainly are good once. I'll be back in a minute, Holmes. Uh, Billy. Yes, sir? Uh, who brought that message? Boy from the chemist, sir. Uh, yes, of course, but which boy? Must have been a new one, sir. I ain't seen him before. Billy, get downstairs quickly. Look after the doctor. If the boy's gone, there's a man with him. It means mischief. Let me know. Don't stop to come up. Ring the doorbell. I'll hear it. Ring it loud. Yes, sir. Have it, Mr. Holmes, to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's dressing gown. I give you my word, Professor Moriarty. You'll be taken from here to the hospital if you keep your hand behind you like that. Ah, that's better. Hmm. In that case, please put your revolver on the table. You evidently don't know me. I think it's quite evident that I do. Uh, pray have a chair, Professor. I can spare you five minutes. That is, if you have anything to say. Uh, careful. What are you about to do, Professor Moriarty? Look at my watch. I'll tell you when your five minutes is up. It is your intention to pursue this case against me? Uh, that is my intention. To the very end. I regret this. Not so much on my own account, but... On yours. I share your regret, Professor, but solely because of the rather uncomfortable position it will cause you to occupy. May I inquire to what position you are pleased to allude, Mr. Holmes? I refer to the position you will occupy at the end of a rope, Professor Moriarty. And have you the faintest idea that you'll be permitted to live to see that day? As to that, I do not particularly care so that I bring you to see it. You'll never bring me to see it. Do you think that I would be here if I hadn't made the streets quite safe in every respect? I could never so grossly overestimate your courage as that, Professor Moriarty. Do you imagine that your friend the doctor and your boy Billy will soon return? What? So, it leaves us quite alone, doesn't it, sir? <laughs> quite alone. So that we can talk mass over quietly, Mr. Holmes, and not be disturbed. In the first place, I wish to call your attention to a few memoranda which I've jotted down and which you will find. Uh, here they are. Look out. Don't do that. Chance on quickly. You're farther away from that memorandum book you're talking about. I was uh, merely about to take out a small notebook. Well, merely don't do it. I don't want it. I've got one of my own. If you want it, we'll have someone get it for you. I always like to save my guests unnecessary trouble. I observe that your boy doesn't answer the bell. Mm. No, but I have an idea that he will before long. 
It may possibly be longer than you think, Mr. Holmes. What? That boy? Yes, that boy. Well, at least we'll try the bell once more, Professor. Doesn't it occur to you that he may possibly have been detained, Mr. Holmes? Yeah, it does, Professor. Uh, but it also occurs to me that you're in very much the same predicament, Professor Moriarty. I beg pardon, sir. Someone tried to hold me, sir. Yeah, it's quite evident, however, that he failed to do so. Yes, sir. He's got my coat, sir, but he ain't got me. Billy. Yes, sir. Billy, the gentleman I'm carefully pointing out to you with this forty-five desires to have us get us something of his left-hand inside coat pocket. As he's not feeling quite himself today, and the consequence of his trying to do it himself might prove fatal, I suggest you attend to it for him. Yes, sir. Is this it, sir? This gun? Uh, quite so. Quite so. I'll put it on the table. Uh, not there, Billy. On this table, where I can reach it. It's more like it. That's all, Billy. Shall I see if he's got another, sir? <laughs> Why, Billy, you surprise me. After the gentleman's taken the trouble to inform us that he hasn't. When, sir? When he made a snatch for this one. And now, Professor, now that we have your little memorandum book, do you think of anything else you'd like before Billy goes? Any little thing you've got that you don't want? <laughs> so sorry. That's all, Billy. Thank you, sir. Listen, Holmes, to me. On the 4th of January, you crossed my path. On the 23rd, you incommoded me. And now, at the close of April, I find myself placed in such a position through your continual interference that I'm in positive danger of losing my liberty. Hmm. Have you any suggestions to make? No, I have no suggestions to make. I have a fact to state. If you don't drop it at once, your life's not worth that. I'm afraid, Professor, that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting more important business. If you'll excuse me a moment while I get my pipe off the mantelpiece here. I came here this evening, Mr. Holmes, to see if peace could not be arranged between mm, us. Quite so, quite so. You've seen fit not only to reject my proposals, but to make insulting references coupled with threats of arrest. You've been warned of your danger. You don't heed that warning. Perhaps you'll heed this. Up with your hands, Mr. Holmes. Up with them, right? Didn't imagine I'd leave that gun loaded, did you, Professor Moriarty? Here are your cartridges. I didn't suppose you'd want to use that gun again, so I took them out while you were talking and put them in my pocket. You'll find them all there, Professor. Billy. Yes, sir? Will you please show Professor Moriarty the door? Yes, sir. This way, sir. Don't ever say I didn't warn you, Mr. Holmes. Uh, no. No, Professor Moriarty. No, I never will. Billy, come in. Yes, sir. Billy? Billy, you're a good boy. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. listening to the Columbia Broadcasting System's presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air in Sherlock Holmes, with Orson Welles in the title role and Ray Collins as Dr. Watson. We pause a moment for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
continue now with this CBS presentation of Sherlock Holmes, played by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the air. It was exactly nine o'clock when Sherlock Holmes left the house in Baker Street. He had given the strictest instructions that no one was to follow him. If there had been no word from him by noon of the following day, we must notify Scotland Yard. I went to the window and looked after him as he went down Baker Street. A tall, thin figure in a grey ulster, walking with long, smooth steps in the direction of Langham Place. There he entered a cab. Lighting matches here. That's what I'm doing. Chuck it. Why should I chuck it? There might be gas, you fool. There ain't no gas. It's been four days since we had gas in the room. And I still say there might be gas. Did you check it? Well, I will. Here goes. Ready? Give her a turn. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. Turn her off. Five minutes of that. All your troubles are ended. Here. What's that? Basic. That's right, Cregan. That you, Leary? Yes, sir. McCain. Yes, sir. Be careful now, you boys. You've got a tough one tonight. We ain't said who, as I've heard. Sherlock Holmes. Oh, God. You mean that, sir? God's truth. He's going to count him out. Well, if you don't and he gets away, I'm sorry for you, that's all. Take it. The governor's here. Not the governor himself. Professor Moriarty. Shut up. Where's Craigie? Yes, sir. Got your food crew? All here, sir. No mistakes tonight, Cregan. I'll be careful of that, sir. This is Larrabee. Hello. He's in on this job. Hello, Larrabee. Oh. What's that door, Bassick? A small cupboard, sir. No outlet? None whatever, sir. That window? Nailed down, sir. Man might break the glass. If he if he did, he'd come up against the heavy iron bars outside. <laughs> we'll have him tied down before he can break any glass, sir. Uh, you've used it before, eh? Of course, you know it's airtight. Every crevice is sealed, sir. When the men have turned the gas on him, they leave by this door? Yes, sir. We made quite secure. Heavy bolts on the outside, sir. Solid oak bars overall. Let me see how quick you can operate them. They tie a man down, sir. There's no need to hurry. Let me see how quick you can operate them. Leary. Yes, sir. That's good. Open it up. Now, Cregan, the rest of you, one thing remember. Whatever happens, no shooting tonight. Not a single shot can be heard in the alley below. The first thing is to get his revolver away before he has a chance to use it. Two of you attract his attention in front. The other come up on him from behind and snatch it out of his pocket. Then you have him. Arrange that, Cregan. Oh, I'll attend to it, sir. Mr. Larrabee, you understand? We wait for you. I understand, sir. I give you this opportunity to sell him the packet of letters you forged and get what you can for your trouble. A few hundred pounds doesn't interest me, Mr. Larrabee. What I am after is... Oh, I understand, sir. When you've finished and got your money, you whistle, and these gentlemen come in. Let's hear it. You hear that, Cregan? That's right. And Cregan, the proper moment, present my compliments to Mr. Sherlock Holmes and say that I wished him a pleasant journey to the other side. Come on, Basic. 
Good night, gentlemen. Good night. Good night. Good night, Good night sir. Good All right, boys. Clear. When you hear the whistle, in you come. Right you are, sir. Larry. Yes, sir. You get down on the corner below. Let me know when he comes. I will let you know. Well, when you see him driving up, come down the alley and whistle three times. Very good, sir. Here. What's this? Ah! How did you get here? What are you doing there in the passage? Hey, what is it, Larry? A woman here in the passage. Bring her in. Come on, you. Come on. Oh, oh it's you, Miss Faulkner. It's true, then. How did you get to this place? I followed you in a cab. What have you been doing since I came up here? Informing the police, perhaps? No. I was afraid he'd come, so I waited. To warn him, I suppose. No. To warn him, yes. You're going to swindle and deceive him. Sell him a packet of false letters. I know that. What else are you going to do to him? Wouldn't you like to know? Where are those men who came up here? What men? Three terrible-looking men. I saw them go into the street door. You don't mean these men, do you, Miss Faulkner? Help! Help! Tie up, boys. You can't make a noise. Here you are. Tie up. Listen. That's him. There he is now. What? Holmes, that's him. That's the signal. He won't have time to get her out. Shut her in there, in the cupboard. Yeah, that'll do. In with her. Into the cupboard. Hey, there ain't no lock to this here cupboard door. Lock it. Knife something in there. Here, this knife. Yes. This'll do it. Yes. That'll hold her. Now, get out. Quick, quick. Good evening, Mr. Holmes. Ah, Mr. Larrabee. <laughs> oh, really? I certainly thought after all this driving about in a closed cab, you'd show me something new. Uh, seen it before, have you, Mr. Holmes? Oh, well, a time or two. Now that I come to think of it, I nabbed a friend of yours in this place while he was trying to drop himself out of the window. Ed Colvin, the cracksman. Colvin, Colvin, never heard of him before. Well, you certainly never heard of him after. I'm sure of that. A brace of counterfeiters used these luxurious chambers in the spring of 89. Well, one of them hid in that cupboard. We pulled him out with the heels. Quite interesting. But times have changed since then. Uh, so they have, Mr. Larrabee, so they have. But then it was only cracksmen, counterfeiters, pickpockets, and petty swindlers of various kinds. But now... Well, what now? Well, between you and me, Mr. Larrabee, we've heard some not altogether agreeable rumors. Rumors of some pretty shady work not far from here. A murder to a very peculiar kind. I've always had a suspicion... That's it. My surmise was correct. It is. This is what? This room is corked, sealed. What does that signify to us? Nothing to us, Mr. Larrabee, nothing to us. But it might signify a good deal to some poor devil who's been caught and gassed in this trap. Well, if it's nothing to us, suppose we leave it alone and get to business. My time is limited. Yeah, of course. I should have realized that these reflections could not possibly appeal to you. Smoke? Have a cigar, Mr. Holmes? Oh, Thanks. A oh, good cigar, this, Mr. Larrabee. A genuine Havana. Glad you like it. Now, here is the little packet of letters which is the object of this meeting. I haven't opened it yet, but Miss Faulkner tells me everything is there. Uh, suppose, Mr. Larrabee, that as Miss Faulkner knows nothing about this affair, we omit her name from the discussion. What do you mean? Who told you she doesn't know? You did. Every look, tone, gesture, everything you've said and done since I've been in this room has informed me that Miss Faulkner has never consented to this transaction. It is a little speculation of your own. Oh, I suppose you think you can read me like a book. Oh, no, no, like a primer. Well, let it pass. How much will you give? Uh, a thousand pounds. I couldn't take it. 
Uh, what do you ask? 5,000. I couldn't give it. Why, well, I've been offered 4,000 for this little Why packet. Why didn't you take it? Because I intended to get more. Oh, that's too bad. If they offered 4,000, they'll give five. They won't give anything. Why not? They've turned the case over to me. Oh. Will you give 3,000? Mr. Larrabee, strange as it may appear, my time is limited as well as yours. I have brought with me the sum of 1,000 pounds, which is all that I wish to pay. If it is your desire to sell at this figure, kindly surprise me of the fact at once. If not, permit me to wish you a very good evening. Well? You can have it. It's too small a matter to haggle over. Give me the money. Uh, certainly. Ah. I thought you said you'd only brought just a thousand. I did. This is it. You brought a trifle more, I see. Uh, quite so. I didn't say I hadn't brought any more. Oh, you can do your little tricks when it comes to it, can't you? It depends on who I'm dealing with. Here. You give me that money. Come on, quick. Hand it over. <laughs> ah! Get over Now. I've got you where I want you, James Larrabee. You've been so cunning and so cautious and so wise, we couldn't find a thing to hold you for, but this little slip will get you in for robbery. Yeah, you'll have me in, will you? What are your views about being able to get away from here yourself? I do not anticipate any particular difficulty. Yeah, robbery, eh? Why, even if you got away from here, you haven't got a witness. You haven't got a witness to your name. I'm not so sure of that, Mr. Larrabee. Not so sure of that. You usually fasten this cupboard door with a knife? Come away from that door! Faulkner! Oh. Stand back. Contemptible scoundrel, what does this mean? I'll show you what it means, Captain Quick. I'm afraid you're badly hurt, Miss Faulkner. Mr. Holmes, look behind you. James! I'll uh, have to ask you gentlemen to wait just, just one moment, please. Here, there. What's the idea of sitting down and writing? What are you writing? Writing your will, I thought. No, no, only uh, a brief description of one or two of your gentlemen. The police. I'm ready now. Wait a bit. You better listen to me, Mr. Holmes. We're going to tie you down nice and tight to the top of that table. Why, you surprised me, gentlemen. Thinking you're so sure of anybody in this room. And three bars gone out of that window. Bars or no bars, you're not going to get out of here as easy as you expect. There are so many ways, Mr. Larrabee, that I hardly know which one to choose. Well, you better choose quick, I can tell you that. I'll choose at once, Mr. Cregan. And my choice falls on this chair. No, gentlemen, no, not by the window. I'm leaving by the door. Uh, by the way, I left my cigar for you on the windowsill. Good evening, gentlemen. There was no news of Holmes that night. And Biddy reported next morning that he had not breakfasted at home. I had a busy morning at my office in Harley Street... It was after 11 before the last of my appointments was over. And still no news of Holmes. Did you uh, ring Dr. Watson? Oh, Parsons. Is there anyone waiting? I have to be in Baker Street at noon. There's one person in the waiting room, Doctor. A lady, sir, and she wants to see you most particular. Hey, what about? She didn't say, sir, only she said it was the utmost importance to her if you would see her, sir. Oh, very well, I'll see her and call a cab for me at the same time and have it wait. Show the lady in. Yes, sir. Uh, this way, ma'am. This way. Ah, Doctor, it's awfully good of you to see me. I'm Mrs. H. DeWitt Seaton. Dear me, I didn't bring my card case. 
Well, if I did, I've lost it. Don't trouble about a card, Mrs. Seaton. They said you were Mr. Holmes's friend. Several people told me that, several. They advised me to ask you where I could find him today, this morning. And everything depends on it, Doctor, everything. I'd go to Mr. Holmes at once. But I've been. I've been and he wasn't there. You went to Mr. Holmes' house? Yes, in Baker Street. That's why I came to you. They said he might be here. No, he isn't here. But don't you expect him this morning? No, there's no possibility of Mr. Holmes coming, as far as I know. But couldn't you get him to come? It would be such a great favor to me. I'm almost worn out with going about and with this dreadful anxiety. If you could get word to Mr. Holmes to come... I could not get him to come, madam, and I beg you to excuse me. I'm going out myself on urgent business. I have no idea where Mr. Holmes could be. I... It sounded like a accident, sir. Probably nothing more than a broken-down hansom. Uh, see what it is, Parsons. Uh, that's the bell, sir. Somebody's hurt, sir, and they're wanting you. Well, don't allow anybody to come in. I have no more time. Very well, sir. But they're coming in, Doctor. Let the young man come in, can't you? Yeah, you bring him in. There ain't nowhere else for him to go. Kind of a doctor's office is this, and he can't come in when he's there. The doctors can't see anybody. He's got to come in. We can't leave him out in the street, can we? All right, help him in, Parsons. Oh, Doctor, isn't it frightful? Can I be of some use, Not whatever, not whatever. But, Doctor, I must see the poor fellow. Oh, my leg, my leg. Uh, right this way, sir. Be careful of the sill, sir. Uh, that's it. The accident. You can't help a accident. Oh, you can't. That's plain enough. He was on the wrong side of the street, he was. And now, over to this chair. No, no, I'll sit here. No, 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 this is the chair, sir. Uh, don't you suppose I know where I want to sit down? You'll sit down here. Well, that isn't the doctor. Uh, the doctor will have a look at you. Here's the doctor. Uh, that isn't the doctor. Yes, it is a doctor. Here, doctor. Uh, you just come and have a look at this old bloke, will you? He's hurt himself a little in. Uh, are you a cabman? Yes, I'm the cabman. Well, I'll have you arrested for this. Arrested? Arrested, arrested, arrested. You can't arrest me. No, I can't, but somebody else can. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? My hat! My hat! Never mind your hat. I will mind my hat, and I'll hold you responsible. There's your hat in your hand. Go on, sit down. That isn't my hat. Here, you're responsible. I'll have you arrested. Here, come back. I'll go and stick around here. You know, i got to go and attend the uh, main north. Bring your horse in here. I want to speak to him. I... Uh, it's a conspiracy. I won't stay in this place. If I ever get out of here alive... What are you staring at me for, lady? Parsons, tell that cab to wait for me. I must oh. see if he's badly hurt. Uh, yes, sir. Now, my oh. friend, if you'll sit quiet for one moment, I'll have a look at you. No. Well, stay still, will you? Well, how uh, can I... Remarkable, remarkable weather we're having, eh, Doctor? Holmes, what on earth? How about having me remove some of this ridiculous disguise, Watson? Holmes, is that you? Uh, quite so, my dear fellow, quite so. Holmes! Watson, Watson, only get out that window. Look out for blind. What do you want me to do? Nothing. It's already been done by Mrs. Larrabee here. Look out, Holmes. She can get out that way. I don't think so, Watson. Foreman. I've got her, sir. Good work, Foreman. I'll take this lady in charge. Yes, sir. Very good, Foreman. Wait for me outside. Yes, sir. Ah, oh, Watson, my dear fellow, I regret to say that up to the present time, Professor Moriarty himself has not risen to the bait. Where do you think he is? In the open streets, under some clever disguise. Watching for a chance to get at me. And was this woman sent in here? Quite to... so, quite so. A spy. To let them know by some signal. If she found me in the house, now they know. Pull down that blind, Watson. I don't care to be shot at from the street. I imagine we shall hear from Professor Moriarty very soon now. Mr. Holmes! Mr. Holmes! What did I tell you? He's come, sir. From where? The house across the street. He was in there watching these windows. He must have seen something, for he's just come out. 
There was a cab waiting in front of this house, sir. And he's climbed up and changed places with the driver. Get out again quick, Billy, and keep your eye on him. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Watson, let me have a rather heavy portmanteau for a few moments. I won't do it any harm. Parsons, my large gladstone over there in the corner. Bring it here, please. Uh, yes, sir. Here you are, sir. Here's the portmanteau. Uh, thank you, Parsons. Put it down there. Thank you so much. Uh, Parsons, you wanted a cab for the doctor a short time ago. It's been waiting, I believe. Yes, sir. I think it has, sir. Be so good as to tell the driver to come in here and get a valise. When he comes, tell him that's the one. Uh, very good, sir. My dear Watson, times like these, you should tell your man never to take the first cab that comes on call, nor yet the second. The third may be safe. But Holmes, I... All right, I'm cabbing, I'm cabbing. Here it is, cabbie, right, right in this way. Ah, this bag, I want taken down... Uh, right, you are, right, uh, All right, uh, goodbye, Watson. Bye, Watson, old fellow. Uh, wait a minute, driver. It's pretty heavy, I'm afraid. Let me help you. Uh, Watson... I'll write to you from Budapest. Yes, yes, but uh, Holmes... Here, driver, just let me tighten up these straps a bit. There we are, that's right. I'll hold it, driver. You you pull the strap. A few little things in this bag that I wouldn't like to lose. Right, you will see. And it's just as well to make quite sure. Is it not, Professor Moriarty? By means of a simple pair of handcuffs. Blast you, Holmes. Do you imagine, Sherlock Holmes, that this is the end? I ventured to dream that it might be. Are you quite sure the police will be able to hold me? Professor Moriarty, I'm quite sure of nothing. Take him away, Foreman. So, my dear Watson, ends the strange case of Miss Alice Faulkner. Well, what about the letters? Oh, the letters. They were returned to their rightful owner over an hour ago. I suspected from the start that Miss Faulkner was really a nice girl at heart. Ah, oh, dear. What is it, Holmes? I was just reflecting, my dear Watson. With Moriarty out of the way, London, from the point of view of the criminal expert, it's likely to become a singularly uninteresting city. One's morning paper, veritable wilderness of boredom. Mr. Holmes, Mr. Holmes. Uh, yes, Billy? There's a lady, sir. Been waiting for an hour. Says she's got to see you, sir. Case of murder, she says. She's got a face veiled. From which I deduce that she is a lady of over 41 and less than 45, of a strange, dark beauty and considerable social eminence, and that she has lived for some years in the Near East, and that she is now wearing a large blood ruby on the second finger of her left hand. Holmes, how do you know these things? It's amazing. Huh. Elementary, my dear Watson. Elementary. The child's play of deduction. Again tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System, through its affiliated stations coast to coast, has brought you Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air. The 12th production in this unique series featuring Broadway's and radio's most celebrated theatrical producing company. This evening, the play was Orson Welles' own adaptation of William Gillette's Sherlock Holmes. In the cast, Dr. Watson, played by Ray Collins, Alice Faulkner by Mary Taylor, Madge Larrabee by Brenda Forbes, James Larrabee by Edgar Barrier, Inspector Foreman by Morgan Farley, Cragen by Richard Wilson, Brassick by Alfred Shirley, Leary by William Allen, Billy by Arthur Anderson, Professor Moriarty, 
by Eustace Wyatt and Sherlock Holmes by Orson Welles. The orchestra was conducted by Bernard Herman, and the production was supervised for CBS by Davidson Taylor. Your announcer is Frank Gallup. same time another classic narrative dramatized by Orson Welles. Join us then for Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist brought to life by the Mercury Theater on the Air. Orson Welles, the Mercury Theater on the Air, and the immortal Sherlock Holmes in the early autumn of 1938, less than a year before the start of World War II in Europe. It brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight for co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Timothy Olmsted and Jake Cherry. This is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too.